This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Happy Thursday to you. Uh, top of the morning, really. Got a great uh, show for you today. We got, in fact, I've been dying to interview this guest we're going to talk about, talk with today. Donald about, Trump? No. Oh. No. About your mind and mm. how you can use your mind to influence others. Like, and how effective you are at being influenced. Are we talking about mind control here? Uh, no. Kind of more how uh, your mind works and why, what motivates you, what doesn't. Why is it that some people, you just can't motivate them to do certain things? These are not the droids you're looking for. Ooh. Thank you for raising your hand when you did that in a weird, awkward Vulcan I'm not. I don't remember how he did it in the movie. It was beautiful. (laughs) Uh, So we will be talking about the influential mind, what the brain reveals about your power to change others. The funny thing about a lot of us is we only want to be changed if we want to be changed. But if we want to be changed, we'll believe anything. Well, I think a lot of us would love to be changed. We just don't want to put forth the work necessary to make that change. That's right. It's a lot of it's a lot of difficult, painful work in change. Uh, Speaking of change, President Trump's on the way to Davos, Switzerland. Is that how we pronounce it? Yeah. And uh, I guess has a big speech to deliver. Is this... Tomorrow. Yeah. Is he... I mean, it seems scary because these are all the richest billionaires in the world. Right. And he's a rich billionaire. What do they all go talk about? Money. Golf. How to make more. How to make more money. Yeah, basically. You would think they'd all be pretty happy with the work he's doing. Meh. What do you mean, meh? Well, he's the gl- <laughs> this is like the biggest gathering of globalists. Yeah. And he's railing against globalists for the last year and a half. Yeah. Basically pointing at well, them saying, you're the problem. Yeah. Yeah, because he's he's becoming a nat- – he's a nas- – well, I don't know if he's becoming a nationalist. When, when he's it, using nationalism now to, yes. versus globalism. When he was the globalist before. Yeah. Now he's trying not to be. Well, now he's got to defend the little people, right? Right. And again, changing ideas and minds. It's, but it's interesting because a lot of countries have gone all nationalistic. Well, some governments, yeah. So, not so the people. So not, <laughs> some people are really into the whole globalist thing because you know they're trying to make money. Well, there's a lot of money to be made uh, globally. There's also a lot of money to be made locally. Yeah, so what's the balance? We'll get to that. So uh, that's uh, we'll get that in the headlines, I'm sure. More news there. Uh, Russia probe seems to be heating up quite a bit um, as uh, now Mueller, Mueller, I keep calling him Mueller. 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 Well, if he just get rid of the, the U, it'd be I fine. Know. Yeah. If, if Mueller would, uh, if he, he's now interviewing all the big final dogs and if, apparently he wants to get to President Trump. President Trump even said he'd do it under oath. Yeah. Wow. Well, he said that multiple times. So trying to uh, backtrack when everyone has the video makes it tough, even though he's done it before. He's got no problem doing that sort of thing. Yeah. There's video proof. It's not Uh, something that matters, apparently. I personally wouldn't do anything on video. Don't you do it like once a week at least? I'm in the media like that. But but I've learned you don't do that. He's doing like scrapbooking and like makeup tips. Was that you at the Build-A-Bear the other night? Yeah, I was, but that's a different story. But he's actually never seen what I do on television because he can't stomach 
uh, you know. Daytime TV? Relationship improvement. You sure can <laughs> stuff a bear, by the way. Did you see that? Yeah. Yeah. Your I technique was great. They're like, hey, you're trying to take too much stuffing. We only allow so much stuffing in each bear. No, you're just generous. Mm-hmm. I was trying to make a portly Build-A-Bear. But you were making that Build-A-Bear manager sweat bullets. Oh, he was getting nervous. I know. I know. I, well, I, I packed the bear so tight that his, uh, his little button eyes were about to pop off. Poke was, him in it, the eye. Yeah. It was kind of bad. By the way, I walk in today to BYU Broadcasting. I had the weirdest moment. I saw one of our female cleaning staff that appeared to be carrying a human, a, a, a naked, disrobed human, Whoa. under her arm like a satchel. Wow. It's like a little clutch. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing obscure. Nothing crazy. I, it's just... I'm at this weird stage where my glasses, I need new glasses, so I can't see. Everything's kind of blurry far away. Are you sure it wasn't one of those Ghostbuster uh, vacuum packs that they wear? No, nope, no. Nope. She was actually holding what appeared to be a human um, without clothes and just walking. And, and all I could think of was kind of the Me Too movement, Not Your Time oh, movement. I'm like, oh, they're starting to haul people out or whatever. And um, But I got closer, found out it's a mannequin. Missing ah, a leg, by the way. but A one-leg mannequin. You still can't explain what a mannequin is doing at BYU Broadcasting at 6.30 in the Actually, morning. Actually, you can. You can when you think that they were heading up to Studio C's offices. Because at Studio C, they have a lot of mannequins. Awkward. Anyway, it's kind of a uh, it's an upsetting way to arrive at work. Sure. I'm like, am I next? <laughs> Don't hurt me. There are plenty of Twilight Zone episodes that deal with mannequins. I know. That are kind of creepy. I know. That's why we don't watch Twilight. Uh, uh, let's get to the headlines with Terry. Terry, what else should we be paying attention to today? Uh, Michigan State University President Lou Ann Simon will resign in the wake of, the, of Larry Nassar's 175-year sentence for sexual abuse. Nassar worked at the university and served as team doctor for USA Gymnastics. He, uh, Simon's resignation comes as the Michigan State Legislature approved a resolution calling for her to step down. Those calls were joined by Michigan's two senators, Gary Peters and Debbie Stabenow, as tragedies are politicized, blame is inevitable, Simon said. As president, it's only natural that I am the focus of this anger. Of course, the Larry Nassar thing's been playing out over the last seven days as his victims have stepped into court and, and did addressed you hear, him personally. Did and you hear what the judge said? The judge said, I signed your death warrant. Signed your death warrant. You don't deserve to be outside of prison ever again type of thing. And wow. I'm totally okay. I'm, we can't have cruel and unusual punishment, but I'm totally okay. If the same thing that happened to your victims happened to you. Now, there was some discussion about should the president of, of Michigan State step down? She's been there since 2005, right? So she's sure. been there through this. Yeah. There's, when you start going through all the layers, there's all these people that kind of, in, I mean, Har- you, we go back to the Harvey Weinstein situation. There was this whole network that allowed that to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And in the same way, there were people that knew this was going on with this doctor and said, well, What's it going to do to him? This is going to cause a lot of controversy and that, those uh, types of things. Same well, same sort of comments about, you know, what about Harvey Weinstein's family? What about his wife? It actually you know. seems more to parallel Penn State. Well, that's the interesting thing. Michigan State trustee Joel Ferguson downplayed Larry Nassar's scandal surrounding the university and backed University President Lou Simon in an interview on Tuesday, right? Yeah. He goes on a sports radio show 
in uh, in in uh, Detroit. That's where this happened. And he's talked about there were there was a uh, board of trustees meeting. They met for five hours. He goes, we spent like ten minutes on this issue of whether the school president should step down, and we all decided to back her. We're all going to support her. Back her. This yeah. was on Tuesday, of sure. course. Um, there he goes, we have so many other things going on on the university than this Nasser thing. Interesting. Right? You're yeah. like, you start, hold it. Like, wait Something. a second. Hold oh, it. There's 150 girls involved in this case, and you're just Ooh. dismissing it, involving athletes that played at Michigan State. He was like a team. He was a doctor for the athletic department on Michigan State campus, oh, wow. also working with the U.S. gymnastics team, right? So yeah. there's people from all across all different sports that were involved in this is anybody saying that uh, oh you should have known about this or you did know about it and you didn't do anything yes Ooh. there's there's people on campus that heard rumors knew things athletes like went to people and said hey this is happening and they went well let's talk about it instead of let's oh, do something yeah. right let's sweep so it under the rug other trustees refuted that claim saying they spent quite a bit of time talking about what the, what should be the future of the president of the school hmm. and this guy was downplaying it for some reason the quote that got everyone's in that interview was this uh, again this trustee from Michigan State Joel Ferguson uh, the interviewer brought up Penn State and the Jerry Sandusky scandal to ask Ferguson if he thought the NCAA would launch an investigation into their handling of this and he said this isn't Penn State they were dealing with their football program Huh? <laughs> See, there's a big difference it's different. here. It was football, okay. not gymnastics Missing the point. Or, yeah. or, other, or other women's sports. It was football, so it's different. Oh, mercy. So, yeah, that's not playing well. Also, John Cornyn, Republican from Texas, says Congress will have to pass at least two more continuing resolutions. Yeah. Congress will need another stopgap spending bill on the February 8th because there's no chance the House will have an immigration deal by then. Even if the Senate does, the Congress would pass yet another stopgap in March just before the uh, the ultimate expiration of DACA. Really? So they need one in February, and then they need one in <laughs> March, and then they can probably solve this problem. Well, or or let's just get on it. Eh. Solve it now. Eh, why? There's too many factions in the House system have a quick decision. But they but there's also a lot of agreement. Yeah, and we're funding the government. Eh. Ah. Also, as we talked about, President Trump arrives in Switzerland uh, today for two days at the World Economic Forum in Davos. Uh, Trump is expected to meet with world leaders, host a dinner for European business leaders, mingle with the elites at a reception, and give a keynote speech on Friday. Apparently that's his itinerary. <laughs> the Trump administration officials made their first comments at the World Economic Forum on in Switzerland on Wednesday, reassuring global leaders that biz, and business executives that President Trump's America First agenda doesn't mean the U.S. is unwilling to work with other countries. This out of the Washington Post. Uh, oh, it says, America First is not America alone, said Gary Cohen, uh, the head of Trump's National Economic Council. While members of Trump's cabinet fight... The perception that he is against free trade and globalization. They're also touting the new Republican tax cuts as evidence that Trump is making the economy stronger. Yeah. So on we go. On we go. Trying to spend the we hate globalists to, yeah, we'll work with you. Well, it's, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of a tough. It's a, it really yeah. is a tough thing because the United States has <clears throat> been doing a lot for a very, very, very long time. And seemingly not necessarily appreciated for all of it time magazine this week on the cover has a uh, image of the united states and then all the other countries pushed way out to the borders of the of the so america alone Al- yeah kind we're of a concept all, yeah. now we're on okay yeah Good. so we'll see how that works shark related nonprofits are seeing an uptick in donations after the publication of uh 
Uh, ah, we'll skip it. Um, I didn't read the whole story there. It kind of gets all weird. But basically, there were comments saying that Trump doesn't like Shark or like Shark Week. Oh, why? Or has some problems that way. Yeah. And uh, they called it the uh, Shark Controversy. So now, because of that, charities are receiving donations in Trump's name since the story was <laughs> wow. published. Apparently, he's really kind of intimidated by sharks. Well, you know what, isn't? though? He probably loves the show Shark Tank. I don't know if he does. What? Well, they one of them may run against him. No. Yeah. The quote from the president was, "I hope all of the sharks die." This, of course, from 2011. So, wait, are there really a lot of Save the Shark uh, yeah. charities out there? Absolutely. Interesting. Yeah. Because I, I would like to save me. If it was between me and the shark, I would choose me every time. Well, yeah, that's how the human nature is. We're selfish. We just want to self-preserve, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, our goal is to stay alive. And finally, the Wall Street Journal, uh, a new dating no-no is apparently what? asking for a last name. Oh, you can't ask for a last name. Now, the smartphone apps are the primary way people meet. Some things have become too awkward to ask. Tinder and Bumble, other services typically show only first names. Many millennials say asking directly for a last name on a first date feels awkward and signals too obviously that they intend to scour the internet for biographical information. Hmm. There are others say that downloading a date's entire digital footprint armed with a full name can stop a relationship from developing organically. Asking for a last name is definitely a modern social cue that trust is building in a relationship. Wow. There are tactics such as taking a peek at an Uber account name or credit card after a date or asking to exchange social media handles. But wait a minute. How are you supposed to figure out whether or not the person you've been romantically interested in is your cousin? That's a great point. Ask Grandma. But how would you know? (laughs) I don't know. I'm dating this girl named Julie. She looks very familiar. She has. Her eyes are really close like ours, Grandma. Since all the apps are first name only... Asking yeah. for any more information seems creepy. Interesting. But do you remember, I mean, you may not even remember this. Back in the day, you, you always knew their last name. You did? Well, how else would you get to know them? They were in your church. They were in your school. They were in your yeah. neighborhood. They like, were Jimmy Jones's son. Like my wife, I sat there in class waiting for, you know, they called out roll every day. And I went, oh, that's her name. That's how you got it. See, it was you, you would date somebody in your circle. You guys were in class together? Yeah, that's mm-hmm. where we met. Yeah, well, it was, yeah, it was a court-ordered thing. No, it was actually a radio production class. <gasps> was she in radio production? Yeah. She took it to appease her father who wanted her to take a communications course. But Ooh, she that's didn't romantic. That. I had it a girl. Fun. She took a writing class. And well, no, it was like editing. sit down and do a show. I and bet. Ah, sounds great. Heckle the teacher. Uh-huh. And, yeah, that kind of stuff. I had a girl take my phone number off of the roll sheet. There you go. Oh, to report you? No, she called me. What'd she call you? By my name. Uh, see, you should know a name. Is Brian there? I'm looking for Brian. No, this is Jeff. There's four Brians. Oh, here. I'm sorry. Which I one are you looking number. for? Uh, the one that's on Tinder. I'm looking for the Tinder Brian. Uh, three of us are on Tinder. Yeah, so dating has changed. The last names, creepy. That's weird. I'm still not quite sure what Tinder is. Is it the one where you swipe left or right, depending on whether... It's a left swipe, right swipe. Can we have that for food? Sure. Like, those nachos look great. Swipe to the right. It's always about nachos. That seafood mm, looks a little bad. Swipe to the left. Always smell it. Hey, uh, here's some good news for you parents. Hmm. Um, maybe only I knew a few. There's, there's a new theory out there. It's probably not even a new theory, but it's yeah. being touted as a new theory. Of course. Um, that perhaps... Hmm. Maybe messing up a little bit with your kids 
is actually really good for them. Whoa. That gives me a lot of cover there. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like every day. Yeah, for you, it's great. Your kids, not so great. Um, so messing up actually helps your kids learn things that your mess-ups um, will uh, – that you're, that they have to adapt to your mess-up in life. For example, if you don't have a lot of money because you made some bad financial decisions, your children then might learn to be more conservative in how they spend their money. They might also learn mm. to be more uh, you know, self-reliant. They might learn how to earn money. What if, your, what if your parents just say, no, it's too expensive? A lot. Over and over. Well, Doesn't then, that like cement the lesson also? Or? Well, yeah, oh. e- except this good enough – it's called the good enough parent theory and it's put out by psychoanalyst and pediatrician D.W. Winnicott. Hmm. He says the benefit is beyond meeting their basic needs. You got to meet their basic needs. Your children's emotional growth and ability to cope with life's frustrations is improved by small failures hmm. and them knowing that you make mistakes. Hmm. So a constant uh, barrage of you being afraid of not having enough money probably isn't helpful because you might then create somebody who's scarcity minded and not going to progress. But if you if all of a sudden you you can just make minor mistakes, silly mistakes, uh, you know, forget to pay for something at the store, a mistake, Hmm. get home. And then all of a sudden you realize I got to go back. I got to go pay for that. And you get in the car and you show them you're going back to pay for it. There were a few times my parents, maybe they got like something wasn't included on the receipt. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Right. So they just didn't scan it. Went back in the store, yeah. paid for it, sure. came back out, made that a big life lesson sort which of is, situation. Which is why when they have like a breakdown and they get angry at you and yell at you, that you think like you've just destroyed your child, but it actually is a small failure, a moment for you to go back, hmm. fix it, and these little fissures or fractures through life actually make your children stronger. <laughs> Right, you act. You are you. You may <laughs> sound like Woody Woodpecker teach. there. Wow. <laughs> yeah, but it, it's actually a pretty cool theory because if you're a parent out there thinking I'm not good enough, I've never been good enough, I'm destroying my kids. Boom. So if you say that, you're probably you're good. Don't worry about it. You're fine. If you can notice that it's, they're min- they're just minor mistakes. If they're major mistakes, then you, you need to adjust. What if your child calls you out for breaking a rule you just told them not to? You know, you tell your kid something yeah. and then you immediately oh, no, break that's, that rule? No, that's when you ground them. You just put them okay. right in their room and you ground them for don't a talk, week. Don't talk back to dad. Don't you know, make me pull over. I hate to always bring – well, I don't hate to always bring it back to movies. But the way I feel good about myself as a parent is I turn on the film Fences starring Denzel Washington. Why are you talking about a show? Well, because he's not a good dad in the least. And I left that movie theater thinking – I'm doing all right. I'm doing okay. (laughs) Sometimes it's good to have a really bad example. But I think a lot of times we beat ourselves up way too much. Parents, you're doing a great job. I mean, you're doing a great job. Your children having some pain and suffering, totally healthy. And we had an example of this yesterday when I talked about how my wife and I were not feeling all that well. And my two daughters said, we'll take care of you. Oh, that was They put us to bed, read us a story, gave us a massage, turned out the lights. And then they put themselves to bed. Or did they? See, that's the thing. Because you were asleep <laughs> we were under the we, influence of we, medicine. We pretended to be asleep. And then we uh, went in and saw that they were asleep. Oh, see, see that's great parenting. So parents, do not, do not despair. You may be making mistakes, but, hey, it's great just to be a good enough parent. There's no such thing as the perfect parent. There's the good enough parent. 
And that's what we should all be striving for. Up next, we're going to be talking about uh, your influential mind, how the brain reveals your uh, some, some hidden powers, some hidden understanding about how to change others. Welcome back, friends. You know, wouldn't you love to be a lot better at influencing people, of knowing how to motivate others, knowing how to persuade them? Wouldn't you like to know the, the insights about your own abilities to actually get others to do healthy, good things? I'm not like saying take over the world and, um, and just own and destroy all the, you know, whatever. I'm talking about influence and truly helping to, to, to help people be better um, and persuade and motivate. So here to talk to us today uh, about um, a book and a lot of research she's been doing is Dr. Tally Sherritt. She is a neuroscientist, author of The Influential Mind, and uh, she's here to discuss with us how our mind really works, what are some of the pitfalls of our minds if we really do have a desire to be more influential. Tally, thank you for being here. You've been on the show before, and we're honored to have you back. Thank you for having me back. This is exciting. Talk about um, talk about uh, your your research. I mean, what what drove you to to get into the topic of influence and having an influential mind? Um, well, my, my research is really about how people form form beliefs and how those beliefs affect our decisions. Um, and it occurred to me that you know if we understand that. That means two things. That means that we can be more conscientious of our decisions and what's influencing us in our choices. But also, if you understand how the brains around you work, well, that means you'll be better able to communicate information and advice to others, whether it's your kids or uh, people you work with or even your friends, online followers, and so on. Yeah, you know, that um, it seems so... It seems like something we don't really pay attention to. We know we have the the ability to kind of motivate to 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 affect other, or to create an affect in another person. We don't always know the science behind it, which is why I love this topic. And and you being an associate professor of cognitive neuroscience, uh, I think it it's helping us talk about what are some of the things that you're you're finding about the human mind and and just how we go about experiencing influence and and um and motivation from others mm-hmm. um well i think perhaps the, the first thing is um what happens when we disagree with someone and we're trying to change their minds what we automatically try to do when we disagree with someone is come in with kind of a mission, right? Say, you know, you're wrong and I'm right, whether it's a political disagreement or anything really. Um, and we say, well, here's all the data why I'm, I'm right and you're wrong. Um, and it turns out that that doesn't really work very well. Um, so data and figures are very helpful um, when the person in front of us has a similar worldview, or even when they don't really have a strong opinion about the, the uh, issue at all. But when someone is already coming in with a strong opinion or a strong motivation to believe something, 
um, then it's really, really hard to change people with data. You know, think climate change or, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's a debate about whether um, autism is related to childhood vaccines and so on. Yeah, and, and U.S. politics, our, yeah, we've seen it in polling data, right? Yeah. It doesn't matter. You'll believe anything if you're prone to believe it. Exactly, exactly. Um, but, you know, our automatic automatic reaction is to try to convince someone by, by giving all of this information and data. And what we found in our study, so what we did is we actually uh, recorded brain activity of two people at the same time, each person in a different um, MRI machine that enables us to record brain activity, but we let those two people talk to each other over the internet while we record their brain activity. And we um, asked them to make decisions together. And what we found was that when the two people agreed, um, the brain activity of of each person shows very uh, good encoding of the information coming from the agreeing partner. But when two people disagree, Metaphorically speaking, it looks like the brain is shutting down and it's not even encoding the information that's coming from a disagreeing partner. So what does that mean? What it means is that if we really try to, if we want to try to change someone's mind, we need to start with something that we have in common, a common motivation, um, um, a common belief that we have. Because if we start with what we have in common, the person in front of us is more likely to listen, right? Because otherwise, if we start with, you're wrong, I'm right, um, people do one or two things. They either ignore us altogether and not listening to what we're saying, um, or they try to come up with reasons why we are wrong and they are right. right. So while we're talking, they're occupied about, you know, thinking about, oh, no, they don't know what they're talking about and coming up with new reasons. So that actually causes what, what we call the boomerang effect, which is when you try to convince someone, sometimes they actually get um, more extreme in their initial um, opinions. Oh, yeah. Now, you know what? This is fascinating because I I work with couples every day trying to get them to talk to each other and resolve Mm -hmm. conflict. And one of the things I I teach is the the importance to to start with the 80 or 90 percent where we agree in the conflict. And I found Mm -hmm. that in most conflict, we really usually agree on most of it. There's just a few parts we disagree. But if we could shore up where we we are together – and then start uncovering where we might have disagreement. But then even in those little parts where we still disagree, we have agreement. That's actually powerful. I, I never thought of it kind of with your metaphor that the brain almost shuts down and starts fighting against this new knowledge. By the way, I guess it, it doesn't even matter if it's accurate, does it? If, even if the new, act, the new information is actually truly accurate and could improve someone's life, if they don't see it as part of their belief system, their brain just naturally fights it. Right, absolutely. I mean, one of the things, the, the problematic thing is, how do you decide what's accurate or not? Right, right. right. Um, you get information all the time, and it's it's always hard to just say, well, is this true? Is this not true? How am I going to know? Does it matter if it's coming from a scientist or not? Um, so that's, that's problematic. And one example, I actually start the chapter with, with a, an example of a married couple, exactly as you say. Mm. Um, but one of the studies that I cite is actually about the debate about autism and vaccines. So some parents decide not to vaccinate their kids because of the alleged link to autism. Um, and what doctors usually try to do is they try to show those parents all the figures and all the, the science and the data showing that there isn't a link. But um, it's been shown that that doesn't really work very well because hmm. the parents are already engraved in their, in their decision and they're not going to change it. But then a group of scientists at UCLA said, well, let's try a different method. 
instead of focusing on what we disagree on, which is a link to autism, can we get to the same outcome, which is have parents vaccinate their kids without focusing on autism at all? Can we focus on what we agree on? In this case, what they agreed on was the vaccines actually protect kids from potentially deadly diseases, measles, mumps, or rubella, right? right. Um, and so by just focusing on that, on something that they agreed on, they were, they were much more successful at getting parents to say, yes, we will vaccinate the kids, right? Yeah. Instead of actually saying, you're wrong. And is it, I, I, I guess it's, I guess, so that's still a data argument. It's just the data that we agree on. Because I was absolutely, absolutely, and that, yeah, yeah exactly. I, I mean, I mean, that's one method. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. D- does it matter? I mean, I guess another it is another method um, to make more of an emotional argument, uh, right? Yeah. One that ties more to their emotional needs. Um, you know, like the children, the health of the children. Like, can you imagine our children getting this or this or this? I mean, I, I, I guess that's another direction. I think I would naturally go. Right, right. So that works as well. And actually, the emotional strategy, using emotion, is so powerful um, that it is, it can change people's minds, even if they have a very, very different opinion. And actually, I start the book with such an example where I was actually um, listening to a debate between uh, Donald Trump and Ben Carson. So this was back in 2000. September 2015, um, and they were actually debating about the same issue, autism and vaccines. And Dr. Ben Carson, who's a physician, was giving all the data of, you know, why there isn't a link between autism and vaccines. But Mm. Trump, instead of giving the data, he was using a story. So he used a story that was very vivid and detailed and full of emotion. He was telling a story about um, an employee in his company um, who had a small baby, and the baby went to get a vaccine, and then they got really, really sick, um, and eventually um, had autism. Um, and the way that Trump was telling the story was much more convincing um, than than Carson, who's a physician and was basing his opinions on, you know, many on science and lots of experiments. But that just comes to show you that a simple um, use of emotion and stories. Um, has very, very large effects. Wow. And one of the things I guess we're learning is the brain isn't just this computer that is so desirous of objective data. What it seems like, it's very persuadable that you have to do it on the brain's terms. Um, Yeah, well, I mean, the brain is some sort of a computer, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't use things like emotion, yeah. decisions. And it's not that it's using, and, and the truth is, this is not a bad thing. So on average, using emotion is actually good for us. We have emotion because it helps us know what's good, what's bad, what's dangerous, right? If you see something that's frightening, like you know, a predator and a big bear or something, you feel afraid and that affects your actions. You might run, you might hide. So emotion helps us. It helps us make decisions. It helps us survive. But like anything else, um, it can also take us in um, the wrong path. Hmm. What can we do proactively on our own to make sure that we're, we are trying to leave the door of influence open longer? Can I – so instead of me just trying to influence another uh, using – um, data we agree on or using emotion, what can I do personally to try to keep my mind more open to influence from others? Right. 
So one thing is awareness. If we really know what's going on in our in our head and why one thing doesn't affect us and the other thing does affect us, that means we can stop for a second and say, hey, I recognize that. You know, I, I learned about that. I read about it. I know what's going on. Maybe I need to rethink what's going on. Um, so the simple act of awareness means that we will try to reevaluate what's going on and then we will also slow down, right? Mm-hmm. So I think one problem is that in the age of social media, everything is really, really fast, right? We get this kind of one-liner saying, um, this is the evidence or this is true, um, and we make these kind of judgments very, very fast. And, you know, one of the – there's a theory, um, Kahneman has a book called, it's called Thinking Fast and Slow, and he says – when we think fast, when we make decisions fast, emotion has a lot of effect. But when you slow down, that's when we can overcome these things and really try to, to look at things a bit more carefully. So I think awareness is going to help here. It's true. I mean, you'll notice that in an argument or a disagreement with somebody, we don't generally slow the conversation down. We start speeding mm-hmm. it up and we raise the volume and the intensity and um, and then no one's hearing anything, I guess. Th- then it just seems like all the more reason not to not to believe. It's like it's um, like as humans, yeah. we're so self protective, aren't we? That we we um, I, and I guess our it's part. I guess because our fight or flight brain is what's kicking in. We're mm-hmm. we think this is a survival issue, even though really it's just an argument or a discussion about whether we should go to this store or this store. That's very true. A lot of these kind of mechanisms and the way that our brain works is the product of our ancestors, right? Um, our ancestors didn't have all this information in front of them in the form of numbers and letters and so on. Information that they had was things that they just saw around them. Um, they saw, oh, this this person um, is got got into a fight with someone, or this person ate a berry and died, right? So that was the kind of information that they had around them, and the instincts that, that were helpful at that time, um, they're a little bit different now. Hmm. Um, so trying to, to use our brain, which has evolved over a million and million of years, um, to make decisions with information that is in a very different form of what we had um, a long time ago, means that some of the decisions that we make are not going to be optimal. Right. Again, we're speaking with Tally Sherritt, who is an associate professor of cognitive neuroscience with uh, degrees in economics and psychology. She's the founder and director of the Affective Brain Lab at the University College London and uh, has also written the, the recent book, The Influential Mind. She's also been on the show talking about other books. One was The Optimism um, Bias. Tali, is uh, what about crowd? Uh, you know, kind of, you know, um, group mentality, group think. It, it seems like a lot of times we, when we're having these situations, and it's hard to influence, or, or people are trying to influence. There's there's already a crowd uh, either around us or a crowd of thinkers, certain people in certain groups that are battling, you know, Republicans, Democrats in the United States. Does does any of this differ when it comes to um, more, you know, more people, larger groups of of people uh, trying to influence you? Yeah. So especially in cases where we don't have a very strong opinion, right? Imagine a case where you don't really have a strong opinion one way or the other. Let's say you you want to buy a certain product on Amazon. Um, In those cases, social influence has a great effect 
even you know what even when we do have kind of a, a motivation to believe one thing or the other social influence has a great effect and so when we learn that hey everyone around us is buying you know one thing over the other we we think well that thing is much more valuable and we're more likely to buy it or when we hear everyone in, around us believes x then we're more likely to believe it as well now the problem is that Sometimes um, we can get it quite wrong. So let's let's look at ratings online. What we don't realize is, let's say you go on Amazon and you say, "Well, I want to buy," um, and you pan you pants and you look up and you say, "Oh, that those pants got jeans got really really good ratings." So let's buy them. Well, what you don't realize that those ratings are not the product of independent people who went on to to rate it. You had the first person who went and rated those pair of jeans, and they may have rated it very, very high. And so the next person who comes to rate the jeans sees that rating, hmm. and he, he is influenced by that rating. So he's also likely to give a higher rating of what actually his opinion is, right? Right. And so there's been a great study that shows that the first rating influenced all the ratings that comes after it by 25%. Wow. Um, so we need we need to understand that, and when we do look at ratings, we need to kind of take it with 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 a little bit of of skepticism. Um, and I think what today we don't we make so many decisions by looking at ratings, right? Where do I go on holiday? Even like which doctor should I go to, and so on and so forth. And those ratings are not as an accurate reflection of what other people have experienced. And so we need to remember that. That's amazing. 25%. Uh, what what else do we need to know, Tally, about your research in the brain and understanding the influential mind? What else stands out as a must-know that our listeners would uh, would benefit from? Mm. Well, you know, the, the book has um, seven chapters, and each chapter, each chapter talks about one factor. So as you said, one factor is start with something that's in common, and the other factor talks about social influence. Um, so there's, there's these seven factors, but one, you know, one that we may want to mention is control. So another mistake that we tend to do when we're trying to change someone's behavior or opinion is we try to exert control over that person, especially if it's, for like, example, kids. You know, we say, oh, you must eat your salad or you must wear this jacket. The problem is that people don't like the feeling of losing their control, of losing independence and agency, and their reaction is to fight back. Hmm. So a much better way to try to influence people's action is to actually give them a choice. Have them expand their sense of agency and control. If it's a kid, for example, you might say, how about you make your own salad? Right, and then they're more likely to to want to eat that salad that they made on the, the itself. Or you might want to say, well, would you like you know this fruit or that fruit? So by giving people choices, um, we're actually more likely to to influence them, which is kind of a bit counterintuitive. Oh yeah, that is that is so true, and you've seen it, and and then it actually also in, invigorates them because. With their with their need to go make decisions, they can make better decisions, and they're actually growing in the process instead of just you know being maneuvered. Uh, great stuff, Tally Sherritt. Thank you so much for your great work. Uh, the name of the book is "The Influential Mind: What the Brain Reveals About Our Power to Change Others." And when it comes right down to it, think about it, folks. How are you? How effective are you 
at trying to actually influence another. Do you need to control? Do you use just data and facts and assume that everybody cares about the data and facts? Are you effective at managing emotional strategies when it comes to uh, relationships? Powerful stuff, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you understand your influence. Coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We'd have been state champions. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! You know, everybody would like to motivate, move, influence, somehow influence another person, wouldn't you? And you want to. I mean, you need to. These are your kids. These are the people you love. These are the people that uh, you've been given a responsibility or a stewardship over, like your family. How powerful would it be if you could effectively just move them? Not to – I mean, I, I can get anybody to move if I make enough noise, right? I can scare you. I can intimidate you. I can, I can do so many things to get you to do what I want you to do. The problem with, with it is I also have to learn to motivate you in a way today that I can still motivate you tomorrow. And the problem with some of our methods of motivating another human being is we do it at the we, – we actually – do it and rob from tomorrow. Um, for example, if I use force and fear and coercion to to motivate my children, I mean, I guess it works, but eventually my kids will be bigger than me. They'll be stronger than me. They will be taller than me, and my influence will evaporate. My power will be gone because they won't respect me. They won't honor me. As a parent, they just won't be there for me. So ask yourself about how you choose to motivate, how you choose to inspire or influence your family or your friends, your neighbors. Are you doing it in a way that actually is additive, that that makes it so it's easier to be more powerful tomorrow and even more powerful the next day? Because how you choose to influence them in every moment starts to create uh, more power down the road. The ba- the best way to do that would probably be, right, to be – to be, um, to be more principled in how you try to influence. A couple rules I give, though, if, we, if you want to quietly motivate others. First rule is a very basic rule. You must first be influenced by them. Before walking in thinking you know what someone needs, wouldn't it make more sense to find out what they need? One of the, the things I do a lot when I do public speaking um, or just you know events or whatever, I always like to open it up to – Whatever the topic is, if we're talking about relationships, I would just, to the group, say, what makes relationships so difficult? And by just opening it up, you'll start to have hands go up. And as you start taking hands and start hearing what they're saying, I've noticed that many times just what they say, and sometimes I'll write it down on a board, sometimes I'll just go with what we're talking about, but I start to actually have my entire speech written for me. Okay, we need to talk about that. We need to talk about this. But be influenced. And the more open you are to being influenced by somebody, they then start to trust you, right? They start to actually – they start to engage you more because you are – you're actually willing to get into them first before just like laying down the law. Another rule is simply um, when you're listening to them and open to what they're doing, listen for what they're excited about. Listen for what passion they are bringing to the equation. One of the most powerful ways I've found to motivate somebody is to allow them to just kind of be what they like to be. 
Let them go where they want to go with their uh, with their sports, with their athletics, with their extracurricular. Many times as parents, we just want our kids to be a football player because we were a football player. But they come out and they, they're an artist and they want to be artistic and they really are into drawing. And uh, but you're like drawing isn't football and you really got to study and I don't know. Can you just allow people to be what they want to be? And you'll find that out when you listen to them. Um, another uh, powerful way to influence, I think, people is to give them role models of of people that, that they might kind of naturally lean toward, people they might be interested in, and let those role models uh, kind of be their guide. Find If somebody really loves basketball, for example, go find them a prototype. Go find them somebody – that you know came from circumstances like you're coming from, and help them find a role model. Help them find uh, even an NBA star that is similar to them, came from a similar background. Go learn their story. Go find out how they made it pro. Go find out about their work ethic, and let kind of a prototype um, be there for them. Something that can show them that they can do this too. Sometimes the most motivating thing that can get anybody out of a, a hole is simply to know that someone else has done it. And you, you can be very powerful about that. Another thing that's really powerful, a way to influence is be their backer, right? Be the person behind their passion and help them get there. Put your money down to – Get them to art classes, drive them to art classes, talk about their art, show their art, give their art away, brag about their art, do whatever you can to highlight what they really do like, what they really are passionate about. Just some basic ideas, right, to influence another person and and to motivate them, especially as we see more and more of our children. We wonder, are they motivated at all? Is Are they doing anything in there? They don't seem to move off the couch anymore, but they will. If you'll dig into them, understand them, find what they're good at, find what they like, and then partner with them to make something powerful happen. It's just it's just an idea from your coach. A little uh, guidance on the side. That's the goal of the show, helping us all be better at influencing the people around us. As if it wasn't bad enough this flu season, you know, people are dying. People are sick. But now even the dogs could get it, apparently. The so dog flu. All 49 states except Hawaii are, are reporting mass outbreaks, I guess you call it, of the flu. Yeah. So outbreaks of the flu, people in the hospital, people have died. It's it's, it's a serious it's a situation. Deal. Now apparently it's spreading to dogs due to widespread canine influenza. Dogs across the country are experiencing flu-like symptoms which can prove fatal when they're not recognized and treated properly. I wow. never realized dogs could get no. the flu. Uh-uh. Uh, the flu strain present in dog flu is different from the H3N2 virus affecting humans, but it can be every bit as dangerous and even more contagious once it starts spreading. Yeah. According to Newsweek, dog influenza virus has been found in dogs in Pennsylvania, Washington, Canada, and several other areas in North America. A clinic in San Francisco reported it saw 50 cases of the dog flu in two weeks. It even managed to reach areas where there had never been cases of the dog flu before. Hold it. So these dogs that sniff everything, lick everything, eat everything yeah. can catch the flu? Cats have been known to catch the virus, which can spread through coughing, sneezing, even barking or you know, with wow. the dogs, barking when pets are yeah. close proximity. Yeah. Dog flu is commonly spread in dog shelters, kennels, groomers, dog day. <sighs> you know, yeah. It's well, just like us. Yeah. When we're close, no. we spread it. We right? have a do- it's scary. We have a dog park by our house. What if all these dogs are over there spreading 
The flu virus. That's why they need to always sneeze in their elbow. Whatever, the crease of their elbow. Hey, folks, uh, helping you live longer as your dogs uh, fight the flu. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side, along with Terry and Jeff. The gang is gathered. And if you missed uh, our last hour, you go find it on our podcast app. Go to BYURadio.org. Just look up the Matt Townsend Show. You can go to Alexa. Sorry for saying it. It's called an Echo. I know. You just, I know. It's called an Echo. But the you, trigger you just, word is no, what you keep saying. No, you just it's go called to a, an Amazon you just go, Echo. You say, hey, Alexa. What, why don't you just say Al-Exa? Hey, you. Hey, hey Al. Hey, Bebexa. And then what you say is, play the Matt Townsend Show podcast. And if you say that. Boink! The Matt Townsend Show podcast starts to play. We tried it on our uh, another, we'll say, Bluegull yeah. Chrome Bluegull Blast. Blue. Yeah, Blaster. And uh didn't work. Well, yeah, try it on. We didn't say, hey, Alexa, to it. No, yeah. We just said, hey, so-and-so, it play it the Matt like Townsend Show. It works like a charm on, uh, if you just say, hey, Alexa, play the Matt Townsend Show podcast. Or, hey, Alexa, play BYU Radio. And boom, we didn't say podcast. Maybe that will help. You have to say podcast. Nice try, pal. So uh, do that or go to iTunes, Stitcher, tune in. You can download our past shows. It's 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 just a great way to get everything we're talking about and all the other topics that we're bringing you to help you make your life a little healthier and happier. Today, we'll also be getting into the topic of depression. Is it different for fathers than mothers? And we have a researcher that says, oh, yeah. And it's important to understand the difference, so we will get to that in a few minutes. Um, First and foremost, though, let's get to Terry South. Terry, what's going on with the headlines? While speaking to reporters Wednesday, President Trump said he's open to a pathway to citizenship for undocumented young people brought to the U.S. as children, putting him at odds with some of the most conservative members of the Republican Party. We're going to morph into it, he said. It's going to happen at some point in the future over a a period of 10 to 12 years. I think it's a nice uh, thing to have incentive of after a period of years being able to become a citizen. Last year, Trump said he was ending the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program that gave Congress until March 5th to come up with a legislative solution. Trump told reporters he thinks a deal can be reached and DACA recipients should not be concerned about being deported, except for all the people that are currently being deported right now for there's a, there's, a, there's a doctor that's been here for 30 years from Poland. Yeah. He's being deported. There oh, was but a, he's not a DACA, right? Or he's his parent. He's he's the parent, probably. It's he That, that might be a little wordplay by the president. Hey, yeah. if you're a DACA, if you're a child yeah. of a, an undocumented, then you have nothing to worry about. And Homeland, Your parents may be on the way out. Homeland Security said that, that DACA recipients, it's not something, they're not going to be a priority if DACA is rescinded completely right. and isn't on the books. So we'll see where this all goes. But uh, Trump's staff was caught off guard by the comments, which made Trump made during the impromptu appearance at a background briefing on Hardline immigration demands the White House was planning to roll out next Monday. Huh. So apparently, uh, Kelly, 
General Kelly was giving a briefing to all these reporters, and Trump just walked in the door, and everyone, whoa, and they whoa. ran over to talk to him. There's there's photos of them all gathered in the doorway, and Trump yeah. kind of doing that. The website Breitbart is calling President Trump Amnesty Dawn. So, oh, wow. Apparently that, that group doesn't agree with his comments either. Yeah. So we'll see where that goes. Bloomberg reported Wednesday that Trump's uneasy relationship with British Prime Minister Theresa May, who he's meeting with this morning in right. Davos, Switzerland, revealed that Trump warned May last year that he would not visit the UK, quote, until she could promise him a warm welcome. Trump had planned to visit London in February, and hundreds of thousands of protesters were expected to take the streets for his arrival. He eventually canceled the trip earlier this month over what he claimed was the bought sale of a former U.S. embassy building in London. But the president was reportedly bothered by how the British press had treated him. Hmm. He told May as much during a phone call ahead of the February visit. May told Trump that she is powerless to alter the nature of the British coverage. Bloomberg said, as her advisors listened to the call in astonishment at Try the demand. Try harder. Fix your you media. You can always influence the media. Yeah. Huh. Well, you know, you, you kind of reap what you sow. I guess. That's the old phrase. Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin on Wednesday walked back his comments claiming that there is a, quote, secret society among the Department of Justice and FBI to undermine the Trump administration. Mm. The allegations were based on a text exchange between two FBI agents that are accused of anti-Trump bias. On Wednesday, however, Johnson claimed that he did not know what they meant in the exchange. And his committee, the Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs, will now focus on the Clinton email scandal. Wow. Johnson's original comments. We still on that? Yeah, yeah unfortunately. Okay. Johnson's original comments made Tuesday evening on Fox uh, News and said he uh, he said an informant confirming quote a group holding secret meetings offsite and that it showed potentially potential corruption at the highest levels oh, of the wow. FBI. Now he's walking those comments back. Well, it's interesting because if you're about to be indicted for charges that weren't collusion but are obstruction, yeah. Then your next best defense would be everyone's corrupt. Yes, the investigators are corrupt. Just, Past yeah. president was corrupt. Future uh, past called, Democratic candidate was corrupt. Re- reasonable doubt is yeah. what they're creating Just here. Create right? a lot of confusion. Throw some dirt. ABC News has a report. The text. It's one text. It says, "quote Secret society." They're talking about a calendar entry, and they're like, "I haven't seen it yet. Maybe we'll Hold just." On. The, the entry was secret society. Well, the word secret society is in the text, right? But in the string of texts, yeah. it has no basis on the text before it, the text after it. It's well, just maybe that's a just word. a book they were reading. Maybe yeah. it's a book club. So when and pe- the book is called Secret Society. <laughs> the problem is when people are looking for a secret society and yeah. then the words show up, it yeah. seems to kind of confirm what they're looking for, that's what even we though it has about no- last hour. Yeah, <laughs> you if you want to think there's a secret society, there is. And by the way. There's a lot of weird stuff going on with cases, right. federal cases that don't ever seem to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. We've, we've talked about all the cases in the West and mm-hmm. that they were con- they were charged, and, but when and you, people when, were shot, but no one could be convicted. When you start blaming entire governmental yeah. organizations for being corrupt right. and and having secret societies, you got to be careful. Yeah, doctors call it the weekend effect. You heard uh, of this? No, I think Jeff had it. You're more. Week. You're more. Where it says patients in the hospital are more likely to die off hours, whether it's due to brain bleed, heart attack, or clot in the lungs. New research in cardiac arrest in hospitals now asks: Has the weekend effect changed? So, basically, off hours, so late at night or over the weekend, where maybe hospital staffs are in transition or they're yeah. not staffed fully. 
you have a better chance of dying if you're in the hospital. Right? So that was a 2008 study. Do people's anxiety level get higher because they know that staff members are not there? After they read this study, absolutely. Oh, wow. Or is it that... Now, this this study was done in 2008. So they did a follow-up study 10 years later now to see has this effect changed at all. Uh, What they're saying is between 2000 and 2014, weekday survival jumped from 16% to 25%. Mm. Right? So this... The whatever the you know your weekend effect changed that we got better in the oh, hospitals they got better it says while weekends and weeknight survival rose from eleven to twenty one percent according to the study's risk adjusted numbers there was no significant change in the gap between weekday and off hour survival the study said about half the patients in the study experienced cardiac arrest in off hours hmm. so they're not sure if there's like. Yeah. Did this change dramatically enough? Yeah. Is it still the same? It says not really. It's kind of about the same. Interesting. So, hmm. you know, when you're there over the weekend. Well, I've been there over the weekend when it was really busy, and I, but I was drugged up and not critical. Right. But I waited seven hours before they even came back. It was nice, though. I slept. I had great sleep. And finally, this is a, a study that might be uh, interesting to you, Matt. Yeah. You'll try to figure out why a new study found that some adults may be getting too old mm-hmm. for jeans for like like jeans like like pants like pants like denim it says huh. jeans are a staple in many of our wardrobes but a controversial study says that you should give them up when you reach a specific age what age so the group collect plus put together a survey that said by 53 years old people should stop donning their denim the study what? said the stress people experience while gene shopping is intense by age 53, with 6% <laughs> becoming so upset they burst into tears. Finding the perfect pair of jeans is tough, and research showed women spend twice as long as men searching for the right fit, a total of eight long days. But once we find our favorite blues, it's even harder to give them up. 40% of adults admit to keeping a pair of tight jeans and hoping to squeeze into them again one day. Eight, wow. Eight days. For me, it's like eight seconds. Oh, Costco has oh, yeah. it for 20 bucks. I'll just grab that one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say, when you're 55, you buy your jeans at Costco and you just get the elastic band ones. Yeah. Wait, what are you saying? I don't know. You said it first. So no, they must... have the brand. Every once in a while, they'll have the brand that I like. And there's just so much cheaper than they sell them everywhere else. But you mean because you yours are hard to find because you like the you like the skinny jeans, and you like the low cut or the low cut skinny <laughs> well, they're, jeans. They're called low rise. Low rise. Yeah, yeah. And then he likes the, the kind of the bell bottom boot. Uh huh. With the, the little carpenter which is really pocket weird. on the side. It's the it's and it's, carry his hammer. It's the he likes the the boot cut. But with the skinny jeans. So he likes it really tight in the thigh, the knee, the, and then it flares out to a nice uh, kind of ABBA boot cut. It's hot. Hmm. It's hot. And then the low rise. By the way, all can be found at Costco with a, an elastic band waistband. <laughs> Which is great, too. That was me snapping the band. <laughs> it's great, too, if you're pregnant. Because that band... It works with you. Um, some crazy news. Uh, a couple little heads up. If you have the, it's a bad flu season. We all know that. But now there's shortages at some doctor's offices for the supplies you need to test people for the flu and the influenza and the shots and the vaccinations. You know what it is? What? It's the patients that when the doctor steps out of the room, they just start 
grabbing all of the supplies that they can, shoving them in their bags. Why would you? Why would you blame them? Don't you do that? No. Oh, like the plastic gloves and the no, toilet paper. You don't throw that in your bag. It's illegal. No, it's all illegal. What? I mean, it isn't when you have when you have a baby. They'll oh, give you a lot of stuff. When you've like got that. a baby, you yeah, you've got free reign to just well. The funny thing is, you, the place. you think you do, but you walk away with about a hundred dollars <laughs> worth of goods, and it, then you find on your bill it was about four hundred and fifty. Yeah, that's why you have to try to balance things out because they're charging you fifty dollars per aspirin. So yeah. But it's all it's all worth it because you get rid of that pain. So certain hospitals in uh, Pennsylvania, the Pittsburgh area, they're finding out that they're, they're running out of materials to even test for the flu virus. So uh, hopefully they're they're getting on that. Hopefully staying on top of it. But more importantly, you probably need to watch out. Right, flu is the flu, but you got to be careful. Um, speaking of watching out, did you hear this? Uh, the next generation of smartphone cameras. This is a little scary. Okay. Because it used to be they just give you more and more pixels, right? So then they add other features like now you can have slow-mo and portrait sure. mode and all of these old things. Old Western filters you can throw on yeah. there. If you want the sepia old Western filter, um, then you can like really yeah, – yeah, you could do like a little James <laughs> or John Wayne moment. Um, but now what they're finding out, the research is shifting away from increasing the number of megapixels – Towards fusing camera data with computational processing. So Terry explained this perfectly to me, that it's no longer about just having better lenses that can get you more pixels. It's now about all the software on the back end to process all that data. Okay. But here's the, here's the interesting thing. Out of this, uh, these new tools, they're finding out that they're – and with some complex mathematics and modeling – you now can have cameras and light, and you can see how light travels through certain things. So now they're thinking you can actually get phones eventually that can do things like see through fog <gasps> or see inside the human body. Really? Or behind walls. No. Yes. This is like Superman vision. Uh-huh. And it's now eventually – think about this. In five years on your iPhone, it will be, oh, so do you want the iPhone X – 10X? I want the iPhone X-Ray. It'll be X-Ray. And now you'll be able to, when your kids go to bed, you'll be able to spy on them through the wall and make sure they're really in bed. Mm-hmm. Okay, I see you. Get out of the closet. But I can do that now. Well, yeah, you just no, get you gotta, the... I have you, a kid monitor in there, and you're just like, get in bed. He just jumps back in bed after he's playing with his toys. But you understand that when, you're, when your boy, hmm. how old is he, six? Yeah. When he's 16... Yeah. No, You're we'll going to have to get rid there. of the kid monitor. No, this is this is like house rules. No, this that sounds more like, I don't know, a prison. <laughs> well, you know, potato, I don't, potato. I think even in prison settings, they don't let a camera be in the living quarters of the prisoner. You don't know. They could. It depends on the prison. Yeah. And will. what waivers are signed. I didn't know you knew this much about prison. I really don't. So this Apparently. is exciting uh, future. And by the way, that I'm sure that technology will also be in cars where now your car will be able to see through fog. How great will that be? Here in my car, I can see through the fog. Nah, 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 nah. Is this annoying you yet? Yeah. You know that song, right? No. I do. I do now. Hey, um, what? let's get to some empty news, Jeffrey. What else should we be uh, looking at? What other news needs to be covered? Well, we got a couple of Chipotle stories for you. Chipotle. Chip, uh, chip, chip, 
Chipotle. The, the, great, the great burrito capital, the great burrito <laughs> supplier Chipotle. of America. So apparently there's a burrito hero named Bruce Wayne huh. that eats at Chipotle 426 days in a row. Really? Yeah. This is in Tiffin, Ohio. That's great. His name is Bruce Wayne. He just set the new record for consecutive days eating Chipotle. He's eaten at least one entree per day for the last 426 days. And uh, he, incidentally, he dresses up as Batman Bruce in his Wayne. free time. Yeah. To huh. commemorate this accomplishment, Chipotle bestowed a custom Chipotle cape and cufflinks upon Wayne and will reinvest the money he spent over the course of the challenge toward a charity of his choosing. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's great. That's I mean, because Chipotle's had some bad press about some some uh, some some food that made people sick. But if you can go four hundred and whatever days, this guy's obviously proving Chipotle's clean as a whistle. Give me the grande burrito without the flu. <laughs> anyway, uh, there's another Chipotle story. Okay, great. This is in D.C. I like Chipotle. There's a the man way. who sat at the counter of a Washington D.C. Chipotle, ate sixty dollars worth of barbecue beef, and drank a three dollar apple juice. The problem was it was after 3 a.m. and the restaurant at Capital One Arena was closed. Oh, he broke in. Police said the man forced open the front doors on F Street Northwest. A police report says the man destroyed a burglar burglar alarm and consumed the food. He was still sitting on a stool when the general manager arrived at 6.10 a.m. So he was there for three hours eating. The incident occurred on New Year's Day. Authorities said the man fled into a nearby McDonald's restaurant and then disappeared. Yeah, he stopped by there and had uh, 20 apple pies, a couple of shakes. Yeah. He's – I guess he just thinks it's a free-for-all. Just go from one restaurant to the next. Go wherever you want. Yeah. And that's not a bad night. A Chipotle burrito. Kind of sounds like the Trump diet. Yeah. The – you know. 2,500 calories. Yeah. And then here's another one. This one, not at a fast food joint, but at a pharmacy. There's a Utah man. This one's a little, a little close to home. His rare DeLorean was destroyed Saturday when it caught fire shortly after being rear-ended. Oh, no. Daryl Kemsley was driving in Orem. Very no close way. to yeah. home for me. Probably, by your, probably <laughs> in your neighborhood. I think I hit him. Uh, when he was rear-ended, he pulled into a nearby pharmacy parking lot right before the car burst into flames. Kemsley says he went into the pharmacy to get a fire extinguisher, but says he was refused, which doesn't make any sense because if... No fire extinguisher for you. You can't buy a fire extinguisher. That doesn't make sense. That's weird. I stood there in front of her for minutes begging and pleading all while the flames got bigger. Kemsley writes in a Facebook post, a since removed comment on the same post points to a different story. I'm the girl who handed you the Rite Aid fire extinguisher, which you refused. Oh. Why are you lying about this story? DeLorean Performance Industries has a theory. It says Kemsley had falsely claimed the company fully restored the car to get a a premium in the sale, and he decided to destroy or torch the car in an attempt to collect his asserted value. Whoa. Whoa. Wow. Insurance fraud. That went crooked. That's what the alleged. This story happened a couple weeks ago. It's been updated with this Facebook and then the insurance fraud. But, you know. But the sad thing is the wasting of a a great car. Right. 
Yeah. I'm mean, sowing the reputation of a wonderful trilogy of movies. And right. speaking of that. And, uh, and, a, and an establishment that would easily give you a fire extinguisher if your car is on fire. Speaking of a wonderful trilogy, there is actually an experiment that was conducted following this incident. What? In front of the same pharmacy to see if, well, I'll just let Doc Brown do all the talking in this little secret experiment. Hello, my name is Dr. Emmett Brown. It's 10.34 p.m. January 24th, 2018. I'm standing in front of the Twin Pines Pharmacy, and we're conducting an experiment to see whether the DeLorean can function as a vehicle for time travel, even if the vehicle is no longer fit for the road. Now, the impetus behind this experiment was the recent story in the news of a DeLorean bursting into flames in front of this very pharmacy. Now, unfortunately... My prediction regarding plutonium being available at every corner drugstore by the year 1985 was a bit off. And this pharmacy, unfortunately, is all sold out. Which means we'll need to turn to other power sources to generate the 1.21 gigawatts of electricity we need. Great Scott! It's been 33 years, and they found me once again. Well, who are you talking about, Doc? It's the Libyans! Oh, this is heavy! Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, one out of 11 adults suffers a major depressive episode each year. Uh, That news comes from the National Institute for Mental Health and shows the depression rates are on the rise. In fact, some new studies also suggest that um, suffering uh, depression is something we all share, men, women, uh, adults, teens, um, adolescents. So to, to join us to understand it better is Dr. Kevin Schaefer, a professor of social work here at Brigham Young University. And he and his associates wanted to see how much of an impact a depressed parent might have on an adolescent and their development. He joins us today in studio to talk about it. Kevin, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Well, I guess first tell us, do we, is, there a, is there a cause? Do we, is there a known cause for depression? Um, I think it varies. Um, we do know that uh, chemical imbalances in the brain obviously play um, a significant role um, in whether um, individuals are depressed or not. Of course, there are also environmental factors. Sure. Um, Situational, so, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. So we know, for example, stress, yeah. um, which parenting is strongly related <laughs> <Very> to. Stressful. <laughs> Absolutely. Very, exactly. Um, stress is, uh, is a risk factor for yeah. depression. So. Um, it's a complex sort of biological, environmental um, interaction. I'm not sure that we it's have our how, finger on it yet. It's, it's interesting how little we know for something that is so common. We right. And we talk a lot about anxiety. And I know even on uh, the National Institute of Mental Health, there's, they still have a statement that there's no known cause, but there's many things that they can – attribute it to, but there's no, like, why do some people get it and others don't, even in the same family? And it's a strange thing. Right. Yeah, exactly. So um, that, I think, underscores why genetics isn't necessarily the end-all, be-all. Yeah. Um, And some of us just build up resilience through lots of different ways, right? So it might be um, ways that we were taught to deal with problems in childhood, 
Um, it might be the fact that we've experienced stressful situations and so we know how to handle X, Y, or Z. Mm. Um, parenting, I think, is one of those things where it sort of throws you for a total loop. Um, it's not like any other <laughs> yeah. stress that you've ever experienced before in your entire it, life. It's not, it's not easy to prepare for and it actually it's, it like never stops. It just kind of changes. It morphs into the next generation or the next iteration. Right. Yeah. I mean exactly. Once you think you have your finger on how to handle your kid at this age, then they totally change, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Totally. Yeah. Then all of a sudden they're a toddler and um, then and then you have another one. Exactly. So now yeah. you – and you've conquered the first stage, but now – okay, now you haven't conquered toddler, but you have another n- newborn. And then on we go and on we go. What – I guess one of the things that we might want to make sure we're clear on is how does somebody know if they have depression? Like, I mean, because that also – and we'll get into the data, I know, but it, like some of us don't even recognize what we're feeling as depression. We just right. think life is horrible. Right, yeah. Um, I mean, I think if – I think if that feeling is persisting for a long period of time, I mean, we all get, we all have highs yeah, and lows, right? right. Um, and, uh, you know, short term lows that don't have, um, uh, you know, ca- like easy to identify causes um, aren't, isn't necessarily depression, right? Yeah. So when we talk about depression, we talk about long term, persistent lows, feeling blue, um, not being able to, um, uh, get out of bed in the morning or not wanting to get out of bed yeah. in the morning. Um, Incredibly unmotivated, mm-hmm. ne- real negative thinking about hope, uh, hopelessness. Right. Losing losing pleasure in, in things that you used, used to, to bring you. Yeah, uh-huh. exactly. Um, and of course, you know, there are situations that will make you blue for a long period of time. For yeah. example, um, if you're grieving. Yeah. Um, and that's not necessarily depression either, right? That's a normal human yeah. emotion. So yeah. we're talking about something that may not have a easy to identify source and kind of a chronic exact chronic state of it exactly now in your research um, you wanted to check and evaluate uh, how the parents depression impacts their parenting and especially their impact on adolescence right so what are you finding so what we found is that both moms um, and dads who are depressed have effects on their adolescent uh, uh, children um, but we found that um, it looks different for both moms and dads. Depression does. Right, And exactly. the impact and, and the ha- impact how it, it impacts their kids. Exactly. So what we found is for moms, um, it really impacts the ways that they parent their kids. So um, they're less warm. They uh, might be slightly more hostile. Um, they're, they're monitoring their children um, less frequently um, than they would otherwise. Yeah. Um, but for uh, for men, we just found that it wasn't – really the impact of parenting, it was the fact that they were depressed, right? So oh, wow. this suggests to us that um, what we know about depression is it is a gendered phenomenon, right? And so women tend to um, show their depressive symptoms in internalized fashion, mm-hmm. right? So they sort of inwardly turn um, thinking about, you know, things they could do better, um, uh, that sort of feeling of feeling blue, um, those sorts of things, whereas men often manifest it in external ways. Oh, do they? they do they blow up? Do they? Right. Anger um, is, is a very common moodiness, exactly, like total withdrawal huh. um, from situations. So what we, what we think is that kids only pick up on their mom's depression 
because of that internalized thing, right? It actually affects the ways that the moms parent their kids. Oh, wow. Um, but but the kids are picking up on their dad's anger, frustration, yeah. yelling, whatever it might be. Interesting. So, you, I mean, the, one of the benefits, I think, of the research is the fact that, A, it gets us talking about depression, but B, it also might motivate us to – to deal with the depression so we don't impact the kids. So if – but you're, you're saying that um, adolescents are impacted by parental depression. Absolutely. So we looked at, uh, at two outcomes. One was – is called internalizing problem behaviors. Um, these are things like depression, anxiety, um, lack of motivation, and then externalizing behavior, right? And that's mm. – Acting out, yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, which you know sometimes is a little bit hard to differentiate with teenagers, right. I think, but um, but uh, and we found that it had an impact on both of those outcomes for kids, both both male and f- female parents, yes, impacted both in- internal and external uh, manifestation of exactly. So when when moms and dads were depressed, it didn't it didn't actually matter. Which parent was depressed? Um, it impacted. It impacted them exactly. It impacted the kids, so they they were doing poorly, um, both with internalizing behavior problems and externalizing. So they get they might become more depressive. They might become more inward. They might. I mean, I wonder if this has some effect on uh, other issues: suicide mm-hmm. rates, drug use. I mean, because you could see if dad's depressed. It might even make sense why we would have opioid epidemics as well because depressed people might want to medicate, might want to go act out, escape, have their midlife crisis, do crazy things mm-hmm. that mess up the family. Exactly. And what we know, particularly among men, is they're far more likely to self-medicate. Yeah. Far less likely to go get help um, for mental health issues, right? So um, they're far less likely to go see a therapist, mm. um, far less likely to talk to their general practitioner about their mood yeah. um, than than women are. Um, and they're often far more likely to self-medicate through things like alcohol, drugs, et cetera. Yeah. And so, um, you know, depression really can be uh, sort of this um, spark that can create a lot of fire within yeah. the family system. Well, it also seems like it um, it's a because it's a pattern of behaving as well. And if we can't address it, but we are depressed for whatever reason, our children may think that this is just how you learn to cope. Oh, absolutely. So depression becomes yeah. a coping mechanism. Right. So one of them may have clinical like one of them may have a chemical depression, the mm-hmm. parent, but you may actually just be teaching a pattern of behavior to a child that this is life is just to go bare and deal exactly, with. yeah. So, I mean, um, personally, I've I've dealt with depression and anxiety for twenty five years, yeah, right? I'm a yeah. I'm a thirty seven year old man, and that can't hardly remember a time where it hasn't you sort of impacted, impacted my life in some ways. And when I see my children, I have I have four kids, um, particularly my oldest. I see sort of my behaviors uh-huh. manifested in him, and I wonder, well, is that is that genetic? Yeah, right. Is that genetic? <laughs> or is yeah. that me, my parents? Exactly. And, and so I think often it's it's because he's picking up on on how I deal with frustration sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Um, how I deal with uh, you know when something goes wrong in the house, right? right. Which is always happening with four kids. And right. so um, yeah, I mean, I think there's there's uh, both of those things could be true, right? Like uh, he could have sort of a genetic predisposition, yeah. um, but at the same time, he's 
those behaviors are certainly learned, right? And, and I guess that's the power of at least in your family, you know to talk about it. You uh-huh. know what it is. You can address it and and give skills and coping skills and therapy if we need it and 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 uh, some type of medical intervention if we need it. I mean, I guess that's the reason we got to get it out there more because this is – you're saying it's about 10 percent of the population would suffer a depressive event annually. Right. Right, and yeah. That's, so that's a big number, right? That's a huge number, right? Yeah. Because we always hear like anxiety is like 20% sure. over a lifetime, I thought. Sure, yeah. But depression, a depressive event, mm-hmm. 10% of the population. So more and more kids are being raised with anxiety and depression sure. in the home. Sure. Um, and and it's not super surprising, right? Yeah. Um, uh, my wife and I were talking about this not too long ago. Um, you know, so – the last 17, 18 years have been pretty hard years for <laughs> for all of us, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, at least uh, here in the in the U.S., right? We've had economic crises, um, political crises. Right. Um, you know, the news is almost never positive, right? Uh, there's environmental issues right. and and everything else, right? It's not surprising that oh, yeah. that then, we are all then the afflicted. occasional shooting, the occasional right. earthquake, disaster, right. hurricane, right? And it's true. And a lot of us are obsessed with getting that news. Right. And we're far more aware of it yeah. than we've ever been before, right? So things like the internet are double-edged swords. They're amazing tools that help us learn things that we never were able to know before. Um, but at the same time, it also gives us information at a pace that's just rapid, yeah, right? out of yeah. control. Right. And information you may not – I mean, you're getting so much information. You may think that things are a bigger deal than they really are. If if all you're doing is is watching political media, you're going to think everything's always in turmoil. Exactly right. Um, it's and, only in turmoil there. Right. Your yeah. life can be very good. So one of the things I, um, for example, tell students is I ask them questions like, uh, you know, um, when has alcohol and drug abuse been the highest? Right, and so I give them options of decades. Yeah, um, almost universally they pick now. Right now, and it's and it's not true. Yeah, right. Um, I ask them, oh, you know, which which um, which generation is most likely to engage in risky behavior, A, B, or C? They almost always think it's their generation, right? Um, but that's also not true, not true. right? Yeah. So I, <laughs> yeah. if you look at like when I was born, nineteen eighty. Oh yeah. My generation's far worse. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Your generation <laughs> um, messed up. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> my yeah. generation – 60s, that my generation was messed up. Right, exactly. And so I think I think that sort of contributes uh-huh. to um, sort of that environmental – those environmental issues we were talking about, right? right? If we always think that the world around us is not broken. good and yeah. broken in certain ways, then that's going to affect our mental health and really – no, significant absolutely. ways. We're speaking with Dr. Kevin Schaefer. He is a professor of social work here at Brigham Young University and uh, has has been doing a, a great study on parental depression and how it affects adolescent behavior. Um, and overall, I guess what we're finding is moms and dads, both of our depressions impact deeply our children, our adolescents. Dads and moms affect – it's a different effect. Mm-hmm. Mom's d- depression tends to impact parenting of the children more. Dads just tends to kind of be an overall impact, it sounds like, of um, how the dad acts out. Right, exactly. And how he maybe gets angry or 
or secludes himself and is away from the family and is what's the long term effect on the children are you finding out um so that's a little bit murkier yeah it's probably um, harder to tell it's a little bit harder to tell there have been some studies out there that show that uh, parents who have chronic depression right so not just sort of one time episodes um that those kids do tend to do worse on a number of outcomes. Hmm. So they're less likely to complete college. Um, They tend to have depression themselves at higher rates. Um, uh, They tend to have worse physical health issues, more chronic health issues. Yeah. So it does have an impact um, on their life chances as well, right? Like it's not not just affecting the parents, but it's affecting everyone. Um, and, And the reason why we focused on adolescence in this study is because it's such a critical time. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, a lot of the studies prior to ours have focused on the first year of life, and that makes perfect sense. Um, but what we wanted to do is, is sort of take a step back and say, okay, what's happening in this really, really critical period where kids are deciding if they're going to go to college, um, what they might want to do for a profession. They're starting to think about things like romantic relationships. Mm. Um, this is a really, really critical time that sets a, a course for for these kids' lives um, in really substantial ways. And Absolutely. so, we wanted to know, you know, wh- how does that? How do parents um, impact their kids then? And and you know, sort of the other part of that is, is this is sort of the time when kids are becoming emotionally intelligent themselves. Yeah. Um, kids, you know, at age five probably don't pick up on their kid on their parents being depressed. Right. Um, but kids at age 15 probably do. Yeah. Right. They have a sort of an understanding of mental health um, that younger kids don't have. And so we wanted to know um, we thought this was a good test mm-hmm. for sort of the impact of of moms and dads and how it may be different from. Well, one and, another. and you wonder if it could be contagious, like mm-hmm. paradigmatically, I that's a word, just how I see the way if I see my dad is always depressed and angry that's depressing and could make you angry <laughs> yeah exactly, and exactly you're like yeah. how do i and you don't even know what normal is until you go see another mm-hmm. family that dad isn't depressed and angry right yeah so i mean i think you know we know that stability is is really important for kids um and we often think about that as well you know are the parents together is it a two parent family and right. and that's not to minimize no, the, the effects of divorce right. at, at all but but at the same time, um, stability comes in a lot of different forms. Right. Um, if you're not in an emotionally stable home, um, you know that could have equally negative effects as divorce. You right. Um, and a- actually, there's research that shows um, when you aren't in an emotionally stable home, actually divorce isn't necessarily negative. Right. And right. So, oh, right. Um, I have a friend who – a colleague who once told me that the day her mom and dad got divorced was the best day of her life because she knew the fighting would stop. Now we can move on right. and be healthier. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, we can move on. And yeah. so um, you know, I think I think our kids um, pick up on, on our behaviors and, and uh, our, our moods in ways that we yeah. aren't necessarily aware of. What – did anything else come out of the study that, that kind of surprised you? Anything that was shocking for you as a researcher? Yeah, so I mean, I think I think the sort of most interesting thing to me was, in fact, that it is different for for yeah. for uh, for fathers and mothers. Um, we like to think everyone's the same, right? Yeah, I mean, we thought it would really impact the way that dads parent their kids, um, and it does. But that's not the thing that actually matters the most. Yeah, um, and and I think that was surprising. It was also really striking, and and in some ways worrying 
um, for us yeah. as researchers because we do know that men are so far are so less likely to go get help for mental health issues, um, et cetera. And so um, it made us wonder, um, you know, how big is this issue, um, and what do um, families look like where one parent's depressed, where both parents are depressed? Mm. Um, how do those families? Uh, oh, compared can to you imagine other. the lives some people are living with two depressed right. parents and the pain that that must be creating? Yeah. So we've actually done a, a follow-up study recently um, that that has not been published yet, but that actually shows that kids with two depressed parents, which um, in our study was about 10% of kids. Wow. So not an insignificant number. No. Um, about 10% of those kids uh, have, the, have both depressed parents and they do – far worse um, than than kids with either one depressed parent or um, no depressed parents, right? What's your advice um, for those that are out there listening thinking, yeah, you know what? Maybe I am depressed. <laughs> <laughs> or if you, you know, may have become depressed yeah. through the or if discussion. Had, yeah. Or, yeah. Or if, <laughs> yeah, if you're, you're, you're realizing, man, <laughs> I may, I may have a break here. Right. Yeah. So I think, I think the most important thing is, is that depression is something that we know um, quite a bit about, right? We actually know how to help people who have depression. Yeah. Um, it's something that mental health professionals are, are quite good at, right? It's something they see each and every day. Um, it's the biggest mental health issue that, that, that we confront. And so we know a lot about it um, and that it's really, really treatable. Um, yeah. There are ways to um, help with depression, right? Um, one way is through medication. Another way is through talk therapy. Um, therapists will also show you ways to handle depression, right? So there are ways that when you know that you're having a depressive episode, um, you can sort of be able to handle those situations in ways that um, make make that minimize um, the effect of depression. Um, we know how to. Uh, you know, sort of treat the symptoms of depression, right? Yeah. Um, um, I think, you know, for men in particular um, who often um, don't want to go seek help, this is particularly important. It also will uh, help them actually realize um, sort of the feelings that they feel, right? Mm -hmm. um, one study that we – that I recently read um, said that men often just think that feeling bad is just part of being male, Right. Yeah. And that's just... that's actually not true. Um, <laughs> yeah, men are not biologically incapable of feeling happiness yeah. or joy, um, um, but they don't necessarily know that's an emotional issue that they need to confront. That's interesting. It's almost like we just need a little more understanding about exactly. what it yeah. is. And, it, it, and it's also not a weakness. In fact, it's actually there's reasons why you're feeling what you're feeling. And it could actually be additive to life because it would mm -hmm. make your highs higher. You just can't think everything's low, or you'll keep exactly projecting low. Exactly, exactly. That's powerful. I mean, it really is. Uh, it's great work you're doing, Kevin. We're going to have you back to follow a lot of these studies because depression. I had no idea the numbers were that high. Right. But that's yeah. it's life. It's it's life impacting. Uh, Dr. Kevin Schaefer, thanks. Thank thanks you for being with us again. Doing what we can here on the program to help you. Uh, to, to love stronger in your relationships and to, to be able to do it through depression and all the other trials we may be going through. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball. 
Welcome back, friends. Uh, as we talk about depression or anxiety or I guess really any mental health issue, um, there is power in knowing your own know, – knowing yourself, right, and, and getting a better insight into who you are. Many times when people will come see me, I'll just casually ask, uh, you know, do you think you're depressed? And a lot of times they'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, I am. And then I ask, have you done anything about it? Have you sought counseling? Have you have you talked to a doctor about it? Most of the times, no, no. Um, why? And it makes sense, though, right? Because we we don't want to do these changes. We don't want to be pegged as broken. We don't want to uh, rely on someone else to help us. We think we're going to be able to dig ourselves out of it. One of the problems with depression, though, is sometimes – you're already behind, and it might just be chemically. It might be just situationally. Your brain is just behind in, in its ability to make the right decisions in the right timing, in the right way, in the right space. So sometimes it might help to just have an external intervention, and that intervention might be um, some antidepressants for a while, or it might be uh, some cognitive therapy um, and talk therapy for a while. Whatever it is, uh, getting a little boost, a little help is going to help one way or another because it's going to give you a chance to shift how you think about it, how you feel about it. But don't wait. We we um, especially if you've seen the pattern over and over and over. One of the best ways I've ever found to know if you need help is if it's starting to seriously impact your life. If it impacts your interaction with your children and your family, if you're starting to medicate, um, if you're starting to pull yourself away from everyone else, or if you're having aggressive outbursts, right? So if all of these things are starting to happen and it's impacting your life more overtly, more obviously, then it's time to do something. And the sooner you can do it, the better. Um, And I guess what I would do is just seek out somebody you know. And the other reason I would do it is because if you can have this happen to you, it's very likely your children could have it happen to them. And our kids need to see that we are doing what we can with our own mental health issues so that we can hand down these lessons, these learnings, these teachings to the next generation so they can handle their DNA. They can handle their genetics. We hand these traditions down, uh, whether it's a chemical tradition, whether it's a psychological tradition, whether it's abuse, we hand these down to the next generation. So the more we take on learning how to handle it and fix it, the better off we all are. It might very well be the greatest gift you can hand your children is a playbook, a tools book, a tool set for how to manage your mental health issues. Uh, We'll wrap it up with a quote from Thomas Edison, our greatest weakness lies in giving up. The most certain way to succeed is always to try just one more time. Giving up on the issue and not trying to solve it, not trying to ever deal with it, not trying to talk about it makes total sense, right, when you're depressed. The problem is it doesn't make any progress. And all we need is a little bit of progress today on it, a little bit more understanding, a little bit uh, of, of solutions that work, and we can eventually build a way, a, a literally, literally a ladder out of our depression or our mental health issues. Anyway, that's just my take on it. What do I know? Just a coach. That's all I'm doing is trying to give you some tools to help you uh, live a healthier, happier life. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, a little more uh, empty news for us. Jeffrey, what, uh, what else you got in store? Well, we've all had those situations where we're lying in bed and we think we hear a noise. Ah, huh? What's what that? was that? Ah, that happened this morning. Right. And, and yeah. recently we there was a story about a family that discovered there was a, a shelter or something below their garage. Oh, right. So yeah. it was a little scary. It's creepy. Well, uh, there was a, a reported intruder that turned out to just be a roll of duct tape. What? You ever had a roll of duct tape stick you up in your home? Never. Kind Explain. Of stuck, I've kind of stuck to a roll of duct tape before. <laughs> so officers responded to a call from a woman in Bangor, Maine, who heard noises from her basement and reported that her dog was barking aggressively at the noise. Police said it turns out a thump, thump, thump sound the woman heard was a roll of duct tape that fell off a shelf and bounced down the stairs. Ooh, like a slinky. Sergeant Tim Cotton wrote on Facebook that the woman had already investigated before the first officer arrived. The officer felt that the woman could have held her own until police arrived because she was from Maine, had a dog, and a roll of duct tape. But the question is, why was the duct tape on the move? That is a great question. Maybe it was avoiding something. Maybe it was ghosts. Mm. If you've got a ghost in your house, who are you going to call? Uh, I will probably call Terminex. Really? Yeah. Uh, they, I don't think they do night calls, though. I don't know that I believe in ghosts. Really? Yeah. Am I tempting fate? Well, then how do you explain all those mysterious noises you hear in your home? Well, uh, to, this morning, the noise was just the ice moving and sliding down the roof. Oof. Yeah. Or when the ice in your freezer yeah. rattles down, does yeah. that ever freak you out? Yeah, totally. And my wife, like, my wife was startled. She's like, what was that noise? And I'm just like, ice, ice, baby. Do you ever lay there uh, kind of pretending like you didn't hear her when she said, go check on that? Yeah. Like you're still asleep. Like what? You want me to die? Ah, folks. Anyway, doing what we can to help you and the missus make it through those scary nights. This is the Matt Townsend Show. I walk through the streets and I realize that This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning and welcome back to the program, folks. This is hour number three. So if you missed the last hours, BYURadio.org is where you're going to want to go. Go check us out on LinkedIn, on TuneIn's, on iTunes, on Stitcher. We're everywhere. You can even download us or listen to us on uh, these personal assistant devices and Echo if you've got one. Just say, hey, we won't say the name, Belexa. We've got a Morse code operator. We have two kids holding up cans with a string in Uh between them. We have the the lady out in the parking lot with the mirror that's sending signals through the space station. We have the lady with the fluorescent vest that's holding the flags Uh and waving them around. We have a flag flag person. Yeah. We're doing everything we can to get the message out, folks, because we want to help you have a healthier, happier life. And boy, great. I don't know if it's great news, but finally, I'm glad she's coming out with her answer, Oprah, Mm. according to CNN. I don't have the DNA for a presidential run. I'm not doing it. Wow. And I, I mean, I, it, she would have been a great president. Really? Yeah, because you know why? Okay. Every year, hmm. 
after, like at the State of the Union, she'd say, I want everybody to check under your chair. Check under your seat. <laughs> and underneath the seat, there would be some incredible prize. It'd be great. A new car for you, a new car for you, mm. a Tesla for you. That's what I'm getting. If, you know, Hurry. Yeah. That might be going out of business. No, don't say that. The subsidies so, are leaving. So. Ah! So Oprah um, not running for president, which uh, leaves it wide open for Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Yeah. He'd probably run as a Republican, too. Would he? Yeah. That's the rumors. Well, I know, but you have a president that's a Republican, so he'd have to go head-to-head with the the Trumpster. Well— Maybe he thinks he could have a, an advantage there. I don't know. Other rumors uh, flex. that John Kerry, past Democratic presidential candidate, yeah. swift boater campaign victim of the swift boat ad, uh, he's yeah. he may run again. He ran like 15 years ago. But what it says, Still maybe floating around there. Yeah, maybe it says that uh, Democrats need to, a, a, a better they, they yeah. need a better group of candidates still. This is a, a concern with a lot of uh, younger Democrats Yeah, is they start seeing the options and none of them really jump they out as being right. someone who's going to actually have a chance. Yeah. And that's why somebody would throw out an Oprah Winfrey because she already has such incredible name recognition. She's right. got a big heart. She's smart as ever. She knows how to. Or, or someone who would understand them better. Yeah. Represent maybe the younger Democrat. Instead, it's always like mm-hmm. a Bernie Sanders. Now, they, they a lot of younger people went with Bernie and, and supported yeah. him. But at the same time, every candidate is 75, what, 65 plus. Right. Right. Younger people, somebody. Somebody, you know. <laughs> you need another Obama. That's why, well, you need that Cory Booker, man. He's he's a firefighter. He's a yeah. pistol. But he, if you look at polling, which is, you know. This yeah. far out, who cares? If, but yeah. he's not really someone people have faith in at the moment. And they maybe don't, they, maybe they don't even know him really yet. The two, there's uh, the the Los Angeles or the senator from Los Angeles, Kamala. Kamala, she's Harris, I believe. Yeah, she's. They yeah. say she's. She hasn't up done fast. much though. No, yeah, she's she, kind of. She needs a little faded yeah. mm-hmm. out of the public limelight as of late. What about that pregnant judge that lost her legs and just sounds like a rock star? She's a senator, and she's a senator. Uh, oh, probably she's not. Senator. She's from Illinois. Yeah. And and it, she, she sounds. She awesome. made a really good point. Why is everybody surprised I'm pregnant? Yeah. Like. Well, she's fifty. Well, I know, but she's. We can do that now. My wife went in sub forty, and everyone was really concerned. Uh, everyone in the hospital, yeah. or everyone in the They're family. Like, You're what we call a high risk pregnancy. The family was fine with it, yeah. but like the the hospital was like, woof. I know but that's what's funny. We we, <laughs> we then hear a story that somebody, in, a woman in India, has a baby yeah. when she's sixty, and we're all like, oh, okay. So I guess that's the new norm. <laughs> In fact, yeah, I mean, so yeah, you have a, I always tell my mom who's in her 70s, I want a brother. <laughs> and she looks at me like, well, it's not coming from me. <laughs> You're not going to get a brother from me, son. Anyway, she always listens. So I hope that made her happy today that I brought jo- up. John, <laughs> she never gave me a brother. John Kerry yeah. had a uh, difficulty relating to people. Yeah. Being... Remember he was windsurfing or something, or he's out on a boat. Oh, can you imagine? They what turn that into something. Trump but, would call him. I mean, his wife is an heir to the yeah, the Heinz fortune, right? Anticipation. Ooh. And so he's coming from a, a very high level of society, and then trying to relate to 
someone dealing with, say, the opioid crisis or someone dealing with unemployment or someone dealing with any of the other issues that are going on in America, and he doesn't really get any of that. No. He'll read about it. He can say the words, but do they really believe that he relates, and that's where he ran into a problem running. Yeah. And then the way he phrased things and said things, Mitt Romney had some of the problems with that. Just a little, like, a little, I don't know, kind of like a machine, too much like a machine, which is scary because um, Donald Trump is really personable that way. Like, he can, and he'll just, he'll make up a name for him. He speaks, as we, uh, I shared an article with you a while ago, he's speaking outer borough. He's an outer borough speaker. Yeah, and so you get sort of this – it's more of a common way of talking with people. Wow. Now, granted, it's to uh, what he's – he's taking things to extreme. Everything's either tremendous or horrible. Yeah. And he may not really believe that or say that, but that's how he speaks, so Uh that's how he's going to frame it. Boy. Incredible. Uh, Let's get to the headlines, Terry. Anything else going on we should be paying attention to? Dr. Larry Nasser on Wednesday, sentenced to a maximum of 175 years in prison. I just signed your death warrant, the judge said, while sentencing the abusive doctor who pled guilty to assaulting female athletes while serving as the U.S. Gymnastics National Team Physician. Doctor also working at Michigan State with athletes there. The president of Michigan State University, Luann Simon, will resign in the wake of this controversy and... Who knows? More may follow, as it was shown throughout the investigation and the court case that other people knew that these girls, as they were talking directly to Nasser, said that I, t- I spoke to people and they were concerned about how you would deal with this, doctor. You know, uh, that's they were not more the worried concern. about the doctor yeah. than... And the fallout with U.S. gymnastics and uh, just yeah. the school, everyone involved. Sad. So, And by the way, 150 or more women involved, young women involved in this... And um, he only was, I guess, convicted on 10 counts. That's all they needed to convict him. Right. 40 years minimum mm-hmm. up to 175. 175 years. No parole. So that's and he's the death how, warrant. He's yeah. how old now? Yeah, I don't know. 50, 50 something. something. Yeah. Wow. Ah. So, yeah. Good. I mean, yeah. It's a, Good. It's a horrible story, but the outcome is... He's off the street. A step in the right direction, I guess. The Trump slump is real, and it's costing the U.S. bigly, as this article puts it. (laughs) Since President Trump took office, America has slipped from being the second most popular tourist destination behind France to the third, forfeiting its standing to Spain, NBC News reports. Really? That is reflective in a 3.3% drop in travel spending in the U.S. and a 4% drop in inbound travel, the National Travel and Tourism Office reports. A loss of $4.6 billion and 40,000 jobs. Now, how do they attribute this to Trump? Since he took office. Oh, okay, but... It says it's not a reach to say the rhetoric and policies of this administration are affecting sentiment around the world, creating uh, antipathy towards the U.S. and affecting travel behavior, the president of tourism economics, Adam Sachs, says. uh, He told the New York Times last fall, America is the only country aside from Turkey which has suffered a failed coup and a number of (laughs) terrorist attacks, that's Turkey, to report a decline in long-haul travel since 2015, uh, CBS News reports. With each limiting security announcement, we need to uh, offset it with a deliberate welcoming message so America can help reclaim its market share, added the Executive President of Public Affairs for U.S. Travel Association. They're looking at it like the, the, the statements from the White House, they might serve domestic priorities, but when you're looking at the travel industry, it hurts because people hear that and go, man, let's look at Spain. Let's go to Spain and spend our money in in Spain instead. And it might just be that, I mean, it's $4 billion and 40,000 jobs, which might be 
not huge, I guess, in that yeah. market, but it's enough that the tourism industry is like, hey, what are you doing? Knock it off. Slow down your messaging, people. Well, he's in he's in Switzerland now sending the good message. We hope. We'll see. It's Friday. It was when he's going to speak. That's right. So that should be interesting to hear. Republican Senator Orrin Hatch is poised to introduce legislation that would more than double the number of temporary high-skilled visas available for foreign workers. This according to Bloomberg Politics. Tech companies such as Google and Facebook argue that the legislation is necessary to keep American companies competitive because there are not enough U.S. graduates in the desired fields to keep up with demand. Hmm. High-skilled immigration reform has received strong bipartisan support in the past, Senator Hatch believes, and it would be an asset to any larger immigration deal said Hatch's spokesperson. The uh, proposal is expected to allow as many as 195,000 H-1B visas, an increase of 110,000, and the bill could uh, find the support of Democrats. An earlier version of the legislation was co-sponsored by Senator Chris Coons of Delaware. It could nevertheless face opposition from President Trump, who has slammed the H-1B system as being a cheap labor program. Hmm. Wow. Which, if they're doing it correctly, the way I understand it, I don't know how it'll be cheap. Yeah. Sources I'm close to say that whenever they use the uh, <laughs> the funding mechanism, it's always a little higher than it should be. It always, whatever. Yeah. When you're looking for how, how you're supposed to pay people, what rates, there's all these rules. Uh, so I don't know. We'll see. But it is interesting that you, uh, when you go for immigration, mm-hmm. people think the, the drug dealer that's sneaking people over yeah. the border or whatever, instead of... The guy that's coming here to be an engineer that's going to help a, a university, company right. yeah, mm-hmm. and build up the economy. That's There's two stories. Uh, there's multiple stories. But those are like yeah. two extremes, and isn't but that they're the, all in the same Isn't boat. that too where we see like people get a visa and they overstay their visas? So mm-hmm. if they just tightened up that side of it, it you'd mm-hmm. probably stop more illegal immigration than the wall. Right. But that's gonna, the wall is going to get 20 bill. Now, there, there is a concern in the commercial sector when it comes to, say, IT support, and you, you have people, like, thousands of people from India coming into the country, yeah. on per, you know, the companies bringing them in for that purpose, and then there's companies in India that are set up to kind of use the H-1B system to get people here, and, oh, they, and people are... Yeah. So there's, there's some improprieties in that whole mechanism yeah. that need to be fixed. Yeah. It, it, it just, just seems like a great place to invest. Yeah. And that that would also allow you to keep getting people into the country, but then once they once they're done, they can you can get them and, out of the country. And there's there's a system to extend uh-huh. yeah, through they the can process stay in and you can it, do that, but you have to go by the process. Yeah. And there seems to be some breakdowns in the process along the way, and instead of fixing the process, we're just saying shut the door and kick yeah. everybody out. But it also you'd probably need know. more support from businesses. You'd need yep. more probably transparency from businesses. Maybe that's why they're not pushing for that. Right. So huh. it's that's why immigration well, isn't going to be fixed by February eighth, right? Yeah. Because we're going to have like it's, multiple continuing yeah, resolutions. And we've been dealing with this visa problem for ever decades. Yeah. Uh, this was on the BBC yesterday, but I wanted to bring it up again because it's a funny story. Twelve camels were disqualified from a Saudi Arabia camel beauty contest after judges found that they were given Botox to improve their features. Camels are receiving Botox. Yes, because what they're they just their face doesn't look looks too droopy. I I yes. It says the contest held at the King Abdullah's Camel Festival in Saudi Arabia. I 
butchered that probably, whatever. According to Reuters, camels are judged not only on their size and hump, but also their droopy lip and large features. That's why some <laughs> cheaters turn to Botox and fillers to enhance the camel's features, according to oh, uh, local reports boy. there. The use of Botox for the lips and nose and upper lips to the lower lips, and even the jaw, said one man. <laughs> oh, uh, the It makes the head more inflated, so when the camel comes, it's like, oh, look how big that head is. It has big lips and a big nose, according to the newspapers there in Saudi Arabia. Pageant winners can rake in millions of dollars in prize money. So they're Botoxing the camels because they need more of a pouty lip on the camel. <laughs> they want that duck, that pouty duck lip. Yeah, it's a, yeah. it's what they need. So, camel beauty pageants. Oh, what camels? Next? Watch out! They spit. <laughs> they spit. I wonder. I wonder if the Botox impacts their ability to spit. spit. Could. I mean, that camel's drooling a lot. Yeah, I don't even think control. you need to use the muscles anymore. It just falls out. That's that's crazy. Botox. Botox. I mean, and by the way, how do you give a camel Botox? I mean, does that not like sound like the beginning of the greatest joke ever? Hey, did you hear about the doctor giving camel Botox? Hmm? I think it's actually, you remember those, if you give a mouse a cookie books? I think there's one called, if you give camel Botox, yeah. he's going to want to get more Botox. That's right. Mm. And you know that once they stick their Botox nose under the tent, have you ever heard that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The myth. Sure. You don't want to let the camel get his nose in the, under the tent. Mm-hmm. Once their nose is in there, then you'll have a whole camel. Then in they'll tent. get their camel for Botox forehead in there. Mm-hmm. Then the camel ears. Then the camel head. Then the neck. Then the next thing you know, you got camel droppings. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to get all excited. Did this happened on a recent camping trip or something. Yeah, I had a bad camel problem. Mm. Hey, um, uh, did you hear the news? Some former NFLers are calling for an end to tackle football for kids. What? Yeah. Who? It's who's, happening. Who's it's doing happening. This? Former pro football player Kevin Turner, mm-hmm. uh, shown here, 1998 NFL game. He played for the Eagles. All right. Had the most advanced stage of CTE when he died in March at, uh, at the age of 46. Mm. Dr. Ann McKee of Boston University and the Concussion Legacy Foundation said Turner's CTE brought on amnio, a, amyotrophic Lateral sclerosis, ALS, Mm. Lou Gehrig's disease. And so because of that, uh, several NFL players, um, and that and other cases, obviously, have called Thursday for an end for tackle football. Former Pro Football Hall of Famers Nick Buenacotti, Harry Carson, joined Mm. four-time Pro Bowler linebacker Phil Villapiano Mm. and researchers from Boston University to make the announcement. Wow. No, they think there should be flag football for any kid under the age of 14. I'd agree. And I totally I did, agree. I didn't start playing until I was about fourteen. My my son had a head a head to head collision when he was seventeen that was intense mm. hit. And um and my son has a strong big head and it racked him. I think if you get your kid in, say like eight years old, eight, nine years old, you start playing flag football, they start learning some of the concepts and ideas. Without hitting, yeah, and you get you you get your kid at some point, maybe ten or twelve. They decide they don't really like to play it as much, right? And then they haven't, you know, subjected themselves to all these hits. Yeah, I mean, it's fun to go watch the little kids or the little league system uh, used around where I live. They they use it's the that that group of kids called the Gremlins. They're little tiny kids, little helmets. Oh, yeah. It's cute to watch. But then you're watching them just clobber each other. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Isn't there another way that even professional football players could uh, 
you know, Someday. say you're out. Like maybe it, maybe it's not two hand touch, but maybe all the players walk around with like a, a cream pie or something, and you have to throw the pie at well, the person. Well, but it's hard. That would be hard. But an easier thing might be two taser touch. You know, so you have a positive side of the taser and the negative side, and it's one's on each hand, and then all you got to do is two taser touch them. Taser, it. I got him. I got him. He's down. Okay. He's down. He's twitching. I'm all for the pie idea. Any yeah. movie that features a pie fight is a good movie in my opinion. Yeah. See, that's the difference. Did you ever play Little League football? No, but it's I, hard. You know, I always it's hard to play with a pie. You have to understand something. I grew up not wanting to play football, but fantasizing about being in a pie fight. Yeah. But see, never that, happened. I know, that, that pies would work better, I think, on stage. Like, well, don't you yeah. think this is a stage of sorts? Football is football. You can't run with a pie in your hand. It's just hard. Come but on, you, you can for, run for thirty with million gloves. a year. These guys can run with a pie, but you could easily just adapt gloves to have an electrical current, a current that runs through them, a little battery that creates okay. a little current. Then the right glove has to touch, and the left glove touches, and if they both touch, and the guy immediately falls. So you know where to place the ball because it's where it's where the guy is twitching. So now, how is this any better than uh, the trauma to your head? Well, it's not going to cause brain damage. It's just going to cause a little uh, neurological, you know, paralysis for a while. That, so brilliant. those aren't those aren't similar things. No, then it's okay. brilliant. It's brilliant. It's. Uh, it, 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 I think it's a really good idea. In fact, uh, we'll talk to BYU Sports Nation about it if, if what they think about that. I think ask it's a good if, idea. Ask them if they'd rather have the shock or the pie fight. Yeah. I want their two cents on the pie fight. Do you know how much the mess of cleaning up pies all day? I mean, every tackle, there's 100, there's 100 tackles a day in a game. You don't understand. There would be uh, – you after the game, you could have people continue on with the pie fight or yeah. you could do a pie you've, substance slip and slide. There's an opportunity yeah. for more money to be made. You've watched too and much you're, television. You're pumping money back into the economy. Everybody wins. Hmm. Okay. Well, we'll see. We'll see. We'll ask the good brethren at BYU Sports Nation. But first, uh, we'll take a break. When we come back, uh, we'll be talking birth order and parenting with Jeanette Bennett, one of our great contributors. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. It's that time, folks. Uh, who better uh, to be edumacating us than Jeanette Bennett? Uh, Jeanette learn. is the, I know. We're here to learn, aren't we? <laughs> She's the founder and editor-in-chief at Bennett Communications, where she primarily focuses on uh, a, a lot of magazines. I was right. going to say one, but you might you don't focus on one of anything. I focus on whatever's got to go to the printer today. Because <laughs> you have – you do. You have – uh, you have a, a magazine called Utah Valley Magazine, but a business magazine. You have like specific sales magazines. You have bridal magazines. Right. You're everywhere. The bride magazine went to the printer this week. Did so it? So I'm feeling all now on top relax. of the trends. Yeah. Yeah. Now we're working on a a business magazine for a And if anybody wants, client. if you go to utahvalley360.com, you can see everything that they do. 
You can see a lot of words. A lot of words. And that's why we like having you on the show um, because not only one, not only do you bring more class – Aww. To the studio. Well, thank you. Yeah, because I don't know if we don't bring much class here. I mean, <laughs> I do bring the woman factor. I see a totally lot of men do. around here. Oh, my heavens. They drive me crazy. And um, that, but also today you're going to talk to us about um, birth order and parenting. Birth order and parenting. Where did you fit in your family's birth order? So I am second of seven. Wow. And of the seven kids, six are girls. Oh, so wow. there were five girls in a row. We're all very close in age, yeah. like 14 months apart, kind of close. Yeah. Then there's a gap, then there's a boy, and then a girl. At the Unbelievable. End. So I am second of seven. So I feel like I have the traits, some traits of an oldest child, mm-hmm. because I'm toward the yeah. toward the beginning of a big family, and some middle. Sometimes the middle child seems, they feel like they're forgotten. Yep. That's, the, the first yeah. child gets a lot of attention. A lot of attention. In fact, a BYU study said that from ages four to 13, the oldest child gets 3,000 more hours of parenting attention than the second Really? Which is about an hour a day if you do the math. Yeah. And that, that seems that seems ridiculous, but I actually think it's true because oh, yeah. your your oldest child starts doing things first, so you're at their games, you wouldn't oh, yeah. miss a thing, right. you're at their spelling bee, right. both both parents come to parent conference. Totally. <laughs> By Everyone's the end like, you, you forget to go. Yeah, like, oh, was their parent oh, oh are you doing it. okay? Yeah. yeah. I haven't checked I haven't checked your grades for a while. That's how I have six kids and I feel like I don't even I hardly see the other the my bottom two. But some of that is just they may not want to be seen. They're hiding. They're hiding. Yeah. Yeah, they like their uh, autonomy. Well, and we go to wedding. Like last night we went to a wedding dinner, a party for a wedding that's happening today. And all my other boys were at games and my youngest child was just home alone all night. Hmm. Didn't want to come to the wedding. No, we felt horrible. (laughs) But he's like, I don't want to go to that. Oh, I'm sure he's fine. Yeah, he's fine. Youngest children are more independent. I think they have less expectations of their parents and sometimes of themselves. Yeah. I was spoiled. I was the baby and I was spoiled rotten. It was awesome. You're the youngest of how many? Uh, Four of us total, three sisters. Okay. I was the only boy Mm -hmm. and I was spoiled rotten. I loved it. The girls mothered you. I'm sure you had Uh had four mothers. mothers Uh And no, my parents divorced. So my dad wasn't at home. So I was raised by a pack of women. Wow. Like a wolf pack. How does that affect you to this day? I'm a little twitchy. <laughs> no, but I feel like I relate. I, I feel like I really do relate more to women because yeah, for sure. because my they taught me. That's the world you know. Respect them. We mothered our – so that brother, the one brother I have, we mothered him like crazy. Yeah. We always had opinions on what he was wearing and how he was standing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, when he became an adult, he wanted a little bit of distance from us. I think yeah. you know, he, was, he was kind of done being mothered by so many. But but we're all good now. <laughs> yeah, that's Things good. Things have healed. Though. Yeah. Talk to me about um, – because you've been researching more about uh, – you know, how we parent, depending on their where they fall. This has been a topic that's interest, interested me for a long time. In fact, I started my journalism career, air, air quotes, quotes yeah. um, in high school. I was the editor of my high school newspaper. And the first big feature I did was on birth order. Why? I, I found it was fascinating because my older sister and I are quite different. You we're, felt gypped, though, We're a the best bit. of friends. Well, I did feel like my parents thought she was, she was pretty awesome, yeah. and she is. And I was interested because I had heard that the second child often wants to be opposite of the first. We all want attention. We want to be different. We want to distinguish ourselves. We do. And that's a a human need, I guess, to get attention. And so I found that I was often trying to be different than she was. Because if I can't be as awesome as she is in the same ways, 
that maybe I could be the it, best one in this, in a different you know, way. in a different way. Yeah. So I was interested in that second child phenomenon because I did feel like I was falling into that. So I started reading, going to the library, checking yeah. out books, how we used to do. Yeah, do you remember those, those those days? Those books, remember the book turn mobile? The pages. <laughs> oh, I love the book mobile. Such a great day. Mm-hmm. Bookmobile rolls into town. So that was the first thing that I wrote about back then, and it's just interested me. And I have found that as I've parented, so my oldest child, he's 20, and he's the classic oldest child. He's a high achiever. Yeah. He walked at nine months. (laughs) And when I look back at myself, I think at that time as a new parent, their accomplishments, you feel like they reflect on you. Right. And so they matter, right? You Like I was proud of him for walking at nine months. Then I realized a walking child... It's a harder child. Yeah, yeah. No, that's when you start. Uh, we learn to tip them over. So the minute they start walking, we're like, oh, yeah. not yet. Yep, you can't tip do that. <laughs> just make it real hard for them. So then Give the them real big child, boots. Yeah. Youngest child just rolls around. <laughs> with, a, with a flat head. Yes. So <laughs> yeah. I, I have found that's that I'm, right. I'm this way. But also as, as parents, so since I tend to be more oldest child-ish, um, there's some studies that show that whatever you were in your family, you tend to bring that, right? So an oldest child, you tend to like order mm-hmm. and you like you like rules and yeah. you like structure and that's the way you parent. That's the way you attempt to oh, parent. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Where a youngest child would parent with let's have fun. Oh, yeah, that's me. Yeah. I'm like, why? Hey. hey why? And my wife's party. the second oldest and I'm the baby. So she is the order and the structure in the house. She's like, okay, let's do our homework. Yeah. See? So you're a good balance. It's a perfect balance. I think that's great. Except my wife, I'm not sure she thinks it's a great balance. Oh. She wishes I would be more of the the dictator. Mm. I just don't have it in me. No. Until she starts to complain. Then I'm like, someone's going to die. <laughs> <laughs> Someone has to go. And then you take charge. That's right. That's right. That's right. And a middle child tends to be a parent who is really interested in fairness yeah. and, and is more aware of that because they grew up feeling that way. That's No, my middle kids are very much about, that's not fair. Everything's about, how come you got them a car mm-hmm. and you're, that, you just gave us this junky truck, but See? you got Sarah a really nice car. Yeah. That doesn't sound fair. No. And then I'm like, yeah. well, honestly, I, I like her. A lot. <laughs> She's my favorite. You all get to share a truck. I think that sounds lovely. It's a great think, thing. Think what they're learning in that. That's what truck. I tell them, and they they are learning because we have to get it fixed a lot. So they they get the maturity of taking it in and getting it fixed. See, look at that. See, that's fine parenting uh-huh. in my. Book. I don't think my daughter knows how to even jumpstart a car because her car always started. Mm. But every one of my other kids can jumpstart a car. <laughs> they they can probably hotwire a car too. Nice. See, that'll serve them well. It's a great lesson. Serve them well until they're in jail. (laughs) Lessons from their father. That's cool. Yeah. So that is that is interesting. So oldest children, some famous oldest. Yeah. To give you an idea, give me some. Hillary Clinton. Oh, that yeah, that makes sense. A high achiever, almost president. Richard, almost. Yeah. Yeah. Richard Branson, so a high achieving Uh person. So they tend to be. High achieving, they they get their self-esteem and their confidence from accomplishment. Right. And they learn that as a baby when we tend to be looking at them. Their eye contact is just right there. As soon as they smile, we're smiling back. Yeah. We are two parents usually. Focus on them. Immediate feedback. So they crave that, Mm. which is a strength and a weakness. Oh, yeah. Because they they rely on that feedback and that accomplishment in their lives. And then they become seekers of that attention. Right. So they have to learn to manage that. No, totally. Yeah. Uh, my second son, we always joke that he grew up under the shadow of his sister. Mm-hmm. So 
he learned to just be quiet. He learned to not necessarily have an opinion because <laughs> it wouldn't matter because hers she, mattered more. Yeah, and she right. would voice it. So he really is go happy go lucky. Mm-hmm. He's like the easiest child we have. See, but he and, also probably doesn't get what he wants. He yeah. he almost doesn't care. It seems like. Hmm. And middle children tend to be a little less ambitious. Although here's some famous middles. Yeah. Abraham Lincoln. Hmm. Famous compromise. He did okay, person. yeah. He did okay. And empathic. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. That's cool. Um, this one's interesting. Bill Gates, middle child. He's a middle child. He didn't graduate from college. I find that interesting. Yeah. That wasn't yeah. important to him. Loser. <laughs> Couldn't <laughs> yeah. even finish college. <laughs> what an embarrassment. Warren Buffett's also a middle child. Isn't that funny? So I think that, and Anne Hathaway's one. So I think that they learn to just see, see the situation for what it is, yeah. use their skills, not be overly... Kind of sneak in under the radar mm-hmm, almost, yeah. Mm-hmm. Use their skills. So middle children, the hard thing with them is they do feel ignored. And like you were saying, yeah. your son sometimes just gets quiet, and and that's a coping mechanism. But we all, like we said at the beginning, we want attention. So I know my middle son, I have a boy right in the middle of my five, and he'll ask me things like, Mom, what do you remember about my third birthday? It's like, oh. Funny you ask. We had cake. <laughs> <laughs> we had presents and people came. Yeah. Let me find a photo real quick. Oh, document. I hope I took a photo. Totally. And see, that's another thing that, that does happen with um, middle and youngest children is we do tend to take less photos. Now, with our phones, now we, we have take no excuse. Ton. We right. have really no but excuse. But don't you notice we take a lot more, but they almost don't. Back then, a photo meant something because technology was, I mean, photos were totally. weren't abundant. There was one photo of an event. Yeah. Maybe, hopefully. No, we ha- I have 10,000 photos at least. No, probably more than that. 15,000 photos and videos from my children's lives. Right. And Not to one up you, in the I last have... 10 years. Right. Not to one up you, but I have 40,000 on my phone right now. On your phone? <laughs> what do you do with all well, of those? Well, I like to look at them. And then I'll I'll try and find something from two years ago that I want to use for something. And so I just love having them there. And, but what's amazing is they're all on your phone. They're not even out. I know. They're not like – we used to have photos and we'd like give photos to grandma. Remember? You'd take your school pictures uh-huh. and all your school pictures would then be given to grandma every year. Right. So grandma had all of your mm-hmm. pictures. Mm-hmm. I think grandma's, like, grandma still wants the picture know, for the fridge. Does. Totally. But we forget to – yeah. To give it to I her. I mean, Grandma, take your own picture, Grandma. <laughs> what, you don't have a phone? Get on Instagram. <laughs> find a photo. It's or that's on it. We put, them in our, we put them on our photo stream. We do. And then we spend hours teaching Grandma how to get on the photo stream. Yeah. Something's wrong with this Something picture. Something is weird, Something's yeah. Something's weird. So youngest children. Give us some examples of the youngest. Turn, so the youngest, Jim Carrey. I oh, think yeah. he's kind of a classic case. Drew Carey. Oh, boy. Um, Rosie O'Donnell. They're all comedians. Billy Crystal. I know. They like attention. Ugh. And so like the oldest gets attention from being successful and, and doing what the parents want them to do. And the youngest tend to get it from other ways. And I see this with my youngest. So I have a almost six-year-old. Yeah. So she's a caboose by quite a few years. And she does things like yesterday, my daughter bought a pack of Oreos. And Lola, my youngest, got it out, shook salt all over several Oreos and left them out on a plate. And, and even left a note for her aunt, Diana from Lola. And she just can't wait for someone <laughs> to eat these Oreos with salt. She's the devil. She, she is very funny. That's cute. Yeah. So she's trying to get attention that way. She's a prankster. Yeah. Because she, I mean, I have That's read true. to her the least. I'll just yeah. admit it. Oh, yeah. You know, she has had a very different mom than my other kids. 
And so that birth order thing, there's a lot to it. It's no, one absolutely. factor. It's yeah. one factor yeah. because the genders of the children are a huge factor. Genetics. Their genetics, mm-hmm. their individual personality, some of their emotional needs. This is just one factor. That's good, though. But there, there are some pieces to it. Um, like For example, with my oldest, he had a bedtime. And we, we lived by that structure. You know, I read all the books. I was up to date on yeah. all the yeah. parenting tips and tricks. And with my youngest, I kind of feel like, oh, kind of been there, you know. Right, right. And so there, she doesn't have a bedtime. In fact, I actually did this recently. I, I wanted to go to bed. She was hanging out with all the teenagers. I texted them from my bed and said, will someone put Lola to bed at some point? That's the kind of mom <laughs> she has right now. She drives away in a van. <laughs> and I might find out the next day. Maybe. What happened to Lola? I don't know. She some guy picked her up in a van. I'm sure she'll be back. It's uh, but it is. I think it's. I think it's very real. We've in fact um, we have six kids, but there's a space between the first three and the second three. Okay. So we actually have tried to parent them as two different groups. Mm-hmm. We call them the olders and the youngins, and they're different. Right. So our so we actually have a baby of the first three that actually follows more of the fun. Huh, that makes sense. And we have they all follow, and then it, it it's almost it's almost mirrored with our younger hmm. three. So how have you changed as a parent with the two groups? Oh no, I I have no energy for the youngers. <laughs> <laughs> so we we do that. I mean, you're like you feel bad that you texted, hey, somebody take care of Lola, mm-hmm. and I mean that's every night for me. Hmm. Hey, like hey, has anybody seen number six? <laughs> We don't even give names anymore. <laughs> Anybody seen six? I think he's a boy. Yeah, he was. Kind of remember him. I think he ate. Did he eat? <laughs> Has he eaten? Isn't that weird? But it, we do get tired, and yet I've also seen that it might make them like I was. I was so raised to be free and independent. I didn't have a curfew. Mm-hmm. My nice. my mom was so burnt out of parenting by the time I came that it. I I'm kind of more of a free thinker. Which I think is a gift. Yeah, it know? really and, is a gift. And you've realized your own consequences, whereas a first child, some of those consequences are imposed by yeah. a parent. And they're kind of fake. And they're, they're not real. No. They're not tangible to what you're doing. They're kind of imposed, imposed. structurally. Yeah. yeah, which is different from family to family, perhaps. But when you are a youngest and you're just facing the consequences oh, yeah. of eating ice cream for dinner and uh-huh. then you feel or sick. Or not you doing know? your homework. Yep. And, and you're like, oh. Oh, that, Hold it. That kind of stunk. And I could blame my sister or my mom. <laughs> and I'm sure you did. I did, but it didn't matter because I still didn't have the assignment done and then I couldn't I still couldn't do this or yeah. yeah you couldn't play in your game or you couldn't do whatever. So those natural consequences kicked in for the That's youngest. Huge. This is good. This is good insight. Yeah. Is there one thing we should remember when it comes down to parenting birth or birth order parenting anything that stands out that's a, a must remember? I think the main thing is that as parents we need to be aware of our kids' needs and, and to check ourselves a little bit on, on what we're doing and yeah. the inconsistencies that we might have. It doesn't mean we can change them all. No. I'm not going to revert probably to the parent I was. Right. And at, honestly, that 20s. might be better, right? Right. And it might be better for Lola because – I do love that in the beginning I was, I was so – I don't know if obsessed is – that's too strong of a word. But I loved my oldest being accomplished and looking sharp. Yeah. My youngest, she she lately has not wanted to put on her dance clothes for dance. She just wants to wear her school clothes. Yeah. And I've let her because I'm thinking the natural consequences will kick in. Oh, yeah. The other kids will say, where's your leotard? Yeah. Why don't you wear a leotard? <laughs> Why are you wearing jeans? Yes, exactly. Plus, you can't kick as high yeah. in jeans. And I'm counting on I've that learned. social pressure you have learned. <laughs> yeah. 
your kicks are lower, yeah. and yeah. you'll tear your pant, you'll tear your seat out. Yeah, you need leggings for those kicks. <laughs> <laughs> I wish this was a TV show. Yeah, you should see me in <laughs> leggings. It's hot. Oh, uh, interesting stuff, Jeanette. Well, thanks. This is great insight. And oh, thank you. Uh, this is the kind of fun stuff you'll find if you go to utahvalley360.com. Uh, she's writing in every genre you can imagine. Someday you ought to just do a parenting magazine. Ooh. I would have a lot to say. I might have more I questions than answers. That's I know. the we problem. All, that's what we all do. That's what learning is. That's true. Jeanette, Education. Jeanette Bennett, thank you so much. Keep up thank the great you. work. Thanks. Thanks for having me. We will continue the journey straight ahead. Our good brethren from BYU Sports Nation. We'll find out where they fall into the birth order. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Yes, it's time to uh, scurry on down to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show uh, today. It, their show is just 10 minutes away, but they're down there preparing. In fact, we just saw Jerem as he was pressing his face against the windows of our studio. Hello, Spencer and Jerem. Hi. How you guys doing? It's game day. We're excited. BYU at St. Mary's tonight. It's a big game for the Los Cugadores. Los Cugadores. That's a, uh, it is a big game. Because this is this is one of the uh, the the rivalries they have to crush. Well, they just have to win by one. Oh, that's uh, a good point. We'll take it. Uh, a, a crushing would be great. Um, well, what? a win over St. Mary's on Australia Day <laughs> in Moraga would be crushing. Crushing. Yeah, it's a big game because uh, St. Mary's has won three significant games in league already in Provo, yeah. in Spokane. In Stockton, those are the other three toughest. Man, it would it would seem. So if BYU can pull off a win tonight, and they're a nine point dog, and they're less than a twenty five percent chance of winning across the board by different uh, predictors. Come on, it'd be a big win. BYU played a tremendous game at home. Probably should have won that. Um, didn't. Okay. Now that now they play in Moraga. They always have a bunch of Australians on the team, okay? The best player is Australian, Jock Landau. Always. It's Australian night. Oh, the two best players at are Australian. At Pavilion. This is, so, I mean, you know those. Every uh, night's Australian night. The Australians, though, they're going to come out ready to fight. It's Australian night, for heaven's oh, sakes. Oh, like a bunch of kicking kangaroos there. Yeah, right? another shrimp on the bar. <laughs> Barbie. Yeah. Hey, um, I, I was going to ask you guys, uh, because our last guest, Jeanette Bennett, you both know Jeanette. You've had oh, your picture. Jeanette oh, yeah. Bennett. She was, What's up, Utah Valley Magazine? Yeah, she was killing it. And she talked about birth order, and I wanted to know where you guys fit in the birth order of your family. I am number six of seven. Wow. Almost the baby. Neglected. <laughs> I was the baby for seven years, Matt. Were you really? Mm-hmm. And then a little surprise came and stole your title. It was the last seven years. Oh, okay. It was from 2018 to 2011. 20, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Um, what? Uh, how about you, Jerem? I'm the oldest. Oh, wow. Three. By the way, which is why Jerem is such a young uh, stallion, um, worked his way very quickly up into the, uh, the highest levels of radio um, and television stardom. I did? Yeah. Did you not get the memo? Oh. Yeah, Michael. So what does that mean for me? Uh, that man, you're you're an underachiever, and he's an overachiever. All right, I don't believe that for one second. I don't either, because I know both of you, and I know you're both <laughs> overachievers. You guys, I would like to think that I just achieved. No, like no. when I die, they'll be like, "He was whelming." 
he 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 whelmed achieved. He done whelmed us accurately. He didn't yeah. over or underwhelm us. He just whelmed us. Yeah, you know, I was just extremely whelmed. No, you guys are both whelming. I mean that in the best thank, way possible. Thank you, hey, did you guys hear the the uh, news about some former NFLers, Nick B- Hall of Famers, Nick Buenacotti, Harry and Harry Carson have joined four-time Pro Bowl linebacker Phil Villapiano and researchers from BYU, or not BYU, Boston University, and announced that they think there should be no tackle football for kids in Little League until they're 14 years old. Well, the idea of the concussion movie that came out from that doctor was uh, no no playing until you're in high school. Yeah, don't you think? Which is an interesting idea. Yeah. Yeah, I... Listen, I think in like 30 years we're going to look back at football, kind of like we do now almost, but even more, and go, mm-hmm. wow, it was really violent. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like we did, like we used to look back at the dark ages. Well, kind of like we look at how hockey has evolved. They didn't wear helmets in the 60s and 70s. Insane. I know. That is insane. What? And it, it, it's funny. I've, I've done a lot of stuff with rugby over the years, and there are fewer injuries in rugby than football because they don't see the equipment as weaponry mm. to launch their bodies. They tackle properly. Trust me, they still get hurt. But it's not it's not they're not as it's many concussions. Yeah, absolutely. Because they're not knocking heads with something on the helmet, right? So the, yeah, there I'm sure there's a lot of science that justifies like, hey, this is really bad. Why are we doing this? I'm thinking we ought so, to- there's always in sports, in contact sports, there's always going to be a concussion opportunity. It's yeah. just how do you how do you minimize those? And if you want to eliminate them, don't play at all. Like uh-huh. There's a, there's always I'm in non-contact sports. I I broke my like I broke my collarbone in limited contact when like oh. things happen. You know I what I, mean? I about broke my ankle just on a walk on BYU campus. Could yeah. And I almost you know, died. You need to wear ankle braces when you walk around. By no, I, by the way, I'm going to start making helmets fashionable for just the average walker. <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome. I'm going to seriously do it. What uh, what can we expect on your show today other than incredible entertainment and fun? Well, yeah, you can expect some St. Mary's face. Ooh. Just the absolute disgust <laughs> that crosses my face when I think about the gales. Uh, you, Have you seen his St. Mary's face? No, I haven't seen it. Send it to him, Jerem. I'm going to find it. Dr. Dr. Macho, right? Yeah, yeah. He's sending it to you right now. Okay, I'm going to look it up here. Because we've got uh, the voices of BYU basketball and St. Mary's basketball, Greg Rebell and Alex Jensen, respectively, joining us live. Plus, Ooh. Tom Holmo answered a lot of tough questions yesterday with his semi-annual media roundtable, including the sustainability of college football independence Ooh. and the effects of a four and nine season. Oh, okay, that's a lot to that's yep. a lot to cover. Yep. Plus uh, the St. Mary stink face. Oh, it's going to be there. And you're going to get it in your Twitter inbox right now. Any second. 20 seconds ago. Okay, guys. Uh, good luck to you. Best of luck. Go get the stink face on. Man, I didn't know St. Mary's had such a they, – they, they really have a bad taste for St. Mary's. And I guess they should because this is – I mean, it's one thing Gonzaga. We hear from them all the time. Come on. But St. Mary's BYU could beat. Come on. We can beat them. You didn't really ask them about the most important aspect of what we've been discussing. Uh, oh, the pie fight versus ooh. the electric shock. Ooh, I'm I sure s- they would have sided with me, oh, boy. right? Yeah, by the way, there's Spencer's stink face. 
St. Mary's Let face. Let me see. It's ugly. Whoa. He looks like the Joker. He looks like an Italian who has just eaten something offensive. What does an Italian look like? Well, because he's, he's gesticulating yeah, with he his is. hands. Hey, pa. Like, this taste horrible. Yeah. But he, he's mad. Okay, that's it. I'll, we'll ask him tomorrow about whether two below with tasers is better than tackling and better than pie in the face. Now, hero story. Let's get to a witness to the shooting in a Kentucky high school Tuesday says he had just arrived as the mayhem unfolded and was able to rush his friend to the hospital. Tristan Klein told CBS this morning he got to Marshall County High during the shooting and was about to pull away in fear when a familiar face made him pause. I started to flee in my car, and that's when I saw my friend Danny. He was laying on the field. Tristan said he had been shot. Tristan said Danny was surrounded by teachers who didn't know what to do, so I put him in my car as fast as I could. Tristan recalled and uh, drove him as quickly as he could to the hospital. He said, I was scared. I didn't know if the shooter was behind us. I didn't really know where anything was going on. I just saw so many people running. Anyway, he took his uh, friend um, to the hospital where he got the treatment he needed. So he is the hero of the day. Tristan Klein was there and there when he needed to be and, and did the scary thing, which is really what a hero can do. And as we talk about on the show, the real hero um, can be all of us. It's not something that we have to you know, go risk our life and limb always to be the hero. Sometimes we just need to be there for people, to be more compassionate, more accepting, more forgiving, more uplifting, and more positive. Sometimes that will make the biggest hero any day of the week, right? That's the big key. That's the show, my friends. We will continue again tomorrow. We'll see you then. Until tomorrow, make it a great one. BYU Sports Nation is up next. 